good morning, afternoon, or evening, and welcome to the Bloody Disgusting Network. The following show is just horrifying. Beware. You're not cheating on your wife if you eat my lemon square. Your lemon squares taste like ass. And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking, what's your pleasure, sir? We're talking, come to daddy. And we're talking, Julia fucking Cotton. And I'm Joe. And I'm Trace, and we're talking, we'll tear your soul apart. Oh boy, it sounds like a gay come on, but I'm sure in 1987 it was very scary. (laughs) Oh, I'm sure it was, everyone, because we are talking Clive Barker's directorial debut, Hellraiser. Uh, Just a mere one year after discussing Hellraiser 3, Hell on Earth. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we like to do things in order, don't we? Oh my god, we're so bad about that. We always jump right to the sequels, but I'm surprised we did it with that one, if only because this is your movie, right? It is indeed, yes. I mean, folks, of course. Course, we're celebrating the 35th anniversary of the film, which is partially why we held off on doing it for this long. But yeah, this is my fucking baby. I've been waiting like with bated breath for <laughs> ages and ages to talk about this movie. It's like your Scooby-Doo. Yeah, yeah, it really is. <laughs> and also, thank you for getting in a fucking mention of Scooby-Doo like 30 seconds in. I mean, I'm sure I'll do it again, because as we all know, Scooby-Doo does reference Hellraiser sometimes. <laughs> this is true. This is true. But anyway, well, Joe, I'm very happy that we finally get to discuss. It's a film that's pretty formative to your uh, evolution as a horror fan, is it not? Absolutely. Yeah, this is one of the two films that really sparked my interest in the genre. Of course, folks can go back and listen to my horror origin story. But yeah, it was basically Clyde Barker, Double Bill, Candyman, and this. So, so fascinating. But you know what? Uh, I think we need someone else to help us parse through uh, the many layers to what sounds like a simple film, but honestly uh, is not a simple film. No. (laughs) Very complicated, surprisingly (laughs) enough. So everyone, let's bring in our guest who's waiting in the wings. He is a horror journalist with bylines at Daily Dead, Rue Morgue, and Cinepunks. He is the co-host of The Corpse Club, the official podcast of Daily Dead that does deep dives into the world of horror entertainment. Uh, You may also know him from our previous episode on the aforementioned Hellraiser 3 Hell on Earth from last year. Please welcome Brian Christopher. Howdy, gents. How's it going? Welcome back. And it is um, hellish. (laughs) I I, I, I could not think of a pun for that. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm pretty convinced that I was mainly invited on here just because you know the giant temper tantrum I would have thrown had I mm-hmm. like heard this episode and been like, wait, they did Hellraiser and I wasn't invited? <laughs> what the absolute fuck? Like, the it entitlement. Been... The entitlement. <laughs> I'm a white American man. Of course I'm entitled. Like, <laughs> there we go. I let you say it as opposed to me. <laughs> For once. That's true. I'm actually getting reviews on the podcast about it now, so yay. Yeah, you are. You are racist against white people. That that that, that is Joe. That is this Joe. Is true. Yes. <laughs> I will accept that. I've been saying it for years. Okay, Brian, so I, we, we talked about this a bit in Hellraiser 3 Hell on Earth, but wh- wh- why why do you want to keep coming back to talk about this shit? Because <laughs> it's my baby. Like, yes. it is... 
it is my gateway to the genre. It is the movie that has stuck with me the absolute longest. Like this is one, and I think I've heard Joe's origin story on this too. And I think we have something similar where we Mm -hmm. saw it way too young. Like my first memories of seeing a movie are the beginning of Hellraiser. And I'm talking like four or five years old, like growing up in a, growing up in a household where it's like, parents did not give a shit like what I saw. And it was kind of one of those things where like they, I think turned it into a philosophy later where like they didn't want to shield me, but I think it was mainly, they didn't want to have to edit the things that they were watching. So they just Uh, said, fuck it. Let's let them watch. That's the kind of parent I would be. (laughs) I thought you were going to say, Oh, we've already, they realize, Oh, we've already scarred our child. So we should probably just now turn it into a parenting philosophy. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, this is this is a movie that has grown up with me. I mean, not that it's changed, but my understanding of it has changed as I've yeah, gotten yeah. older. You know, because as a kid, well, first it's terrifying and scarring, uh, but then it's oddly intriguing. You're looking at mm-hmm. these awful monsters that are also extremely attractive in like aesthetically and as I get older, I realize also maybe sexually. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And few movies have done that with me where like it's never stopped at a point in time where everything I'm going to get out of this movie like stops at a certain age. It just right. keeps evolving as kind of my sensibilities and my mind evolves. I feel the exact same way too. Like this most recent rewatch just for this episode, I was like, wait, I'm still taking new things away from this movie. Well, so, so Joe, well, give us a brief recap again on um, how you discovered this film. But I really want to know like, why, why does this film speak to you so much? Cause this isn't just, Oh, it's one of the first horror movies I saw. Like you adore this movie. I absolutely do. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, the logline isn't much more sophisticated than that. Like my sister and I used to watch movies together, but whenever my parents would leave and she was stuck babysitting me she i think (laughs) disliked the fact so she would rent horror movies to try to scare me and entertain me and yeah the first one was this clive barker double bill and i feel like what it ended up doing was confirming to me that a certain type of horror existed i like my introduction to the genre wasn't really schlocky 80s horror in the vein of friday the 13th it wasn't legacy sequels like i wasn't watching nightmare on elm street and Jason Voorhees and all the other folks it was like it was these kinds of movies like deep sophisticated sexy films and so I kind of ended up training myself to think that this was what horror should be like horror could be deeply metaphorical it could be classical it could be operatic it could be melodramatic and I do think that that's sometimes why I go back and look at older films and I don't always appreciate them the way that folks do and i'm saying i'm speaking mostly from the 80s because i'm a child of the 80s but Mm -hmm. yeah i don't know hellraiser just always struck me as so creative and then of course as i began to realize that i was queer i saw so much of myself in clive barker's work and hellraiser is really to me the kind of pinnacle of queer horror perfection like nearly every character in this film particular is queer like or queered in some way or othered and i think that there's such a fascination with that 
And yeah, I just, I end up seeing a lot of myself in Barker's work overall, as we've talked about in both Nightbreed and Lord of Illusions, but Hellraiser is the one that speaks to me most strongly. Yeah, no, I, I can already hear the naysayers in, our, in the audience, the very few naysayers we have. They're like, um, everyone's queer in this movie, Joe, really? Mm-hmm. But um, I'm sure we're going to go deep, deep, deep into that. And to that, I will say, yes, everyone is fucking <laughs> queer in You're this so movie. queer. Yeah. Interesting. Do y'all find that this franchise, and maybe we'll even just say these first two, but I think people always judge it as a franchise because, and you know, it has this stigma of being a really bad franchise. But y'all, again, mm-hmm. it is really just everything post, for some people, post two, for some people, post three, for some people, like Joe, post four. <laughs> yeah, and I think there's even interesting things in some of the later films. It's just that the people who are making those films, and I think we talk about this a little bit in Bloodline particularly, because we talk about it as the last theatrical film in the franchise. But yeah, I I think there's always interesting ideas. It's just that they sort of lose the plot. Like, they turn it into just a film noir with a Cenobite who shows up every once in a while. And that's the power of especially these first two films. They seem to have an uncanny understanding of when to use the Cenobites and then when to get them the fuck off screen and focus on the true monsters, which are Julia Cotton and Frank. That's the thing, though. I feel like so many people that that either kind of brush off this franchise or they're like, ooh, that's not for me. It's too intense or whatever. I don't even think they know what this franchise or this first movie anyway is about. Because I mm-hmm. actually told some people about it yesterday who were not really horror fans. But they, again, they knew Pinhead because sure. she's on all the box art. Of course. And when I told them the plot of this movie, they were like, I had no fucking idea that's what that movie was about. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I like to joke that this film is actually a melodrama, and it just happens to have monsters in it. I mean, Clive Barker himself described it as a perverse love story, which again, yes, absolutely. When you're looking, like, when you're looking at this box, you're like, oh, Hellraiser, it's the pinhead, it's the torture movie. Like you would not think that going in. Mm-hmm. And Clive Barker is actually on the record as saying, like, he fucking hates torture porn films, so he would be absolutely aghast to hear anyone say, oh, this is comparable to Saw or something like that. Why do y'all think, okay, so okay, before we go into the production of this film, so why do you think that is? Like, what is the difference between torture porn? And I'm asking kind of like, uh, I don't know, because like, I kind of know, but I don't know. What is the difference between torture porn and then what we have on display with the gore and violence in this film, the sadomasochism? If I may, mm-hmm. torture porn, and when I think torture porn, I think about movies like, I mean, I guess Hostel is usually mm-hmm. the one that pops into most people's minds. I think Saw, some people... I think a saw is torture porn. I don't even know if I would consider saw torture porn. I actually think torture porn is a much narrower subgenre than a lot of people think of. But for me, torture porn is about lingering on cringe inducing shots and making you like just dwell on the pain. And Mm -hmm. yes, you know, you, you could argue that that's a lot of what, what Hellraiser is about. Like these Cenobites are all about pain, but the difference for me is that there is much more of that kink element where they're talking Mm -hmm. about the intersection of pleasure and pain. And you don't have like those scenes like you do in Hostel where it's like, there's no music. You're just going to watch this guy get like his Achilles tendon get slashed. And you're just going to watch him get like, you know, chunks of his skin gouged out. Like for as much as they talk about pain and for as gory and splattery as this is, they don't linger the way that torture porn does in a kind of, for lack of a better term, seedy way that I Mm -hmm. think torture porn does. 
It's interesting, too, because even watching this last night, I've seen this movie at least five times. And I was, you're right, it is very gory, it is very uh, uh, gooey. But yeah, it's not, it doesn't seem to relish in that. But at the same time, I was the most uncomfortable I've ever been watching this movie last night. And most of it is because of how much they don't show. And right. I actually like, and I felt very uncomfortable watching this. And again, I hadn't really felt that before. And I don't know what was different about my state of mind or if I just have aged more and I, my mindset's mm-hmm. a bit different. But I kind of liken this to the same feeling I get with cosmic horror, where it's like that feel of the uh, fear of the unknown. Like so much of what happens to the characters in this movie, I'm like, this is legitimately terrifying. Like Frank mm-hmm. aside, like, you know, because whatever. But Kirsty, <laughs> even, I'm just like, oh, I, I, I would be dead I, w- I would be dead if i was a member of this movie yeah it's weird because i i feel like so much of what we see in horror and particularly like domestic horror which was very popular in the 80s right mm-hmm. like i'm thinking of things like poltergeist or even arachnophobia where it's about like suburban domestic spaces that get infiltrated by horrific things and people's everyday life gets upended and this is kind of the same but we're talking about yeah, it, it almost is cosmic, right? Like we're talking about beings from a completely different dimension. And while Kirsty isn't my favorite character, I have grown to appreciate her arc in this film more. But if you look at what these characters are dealing with, these are mundane things, right? Like it's adultery, it's mild incest it's about kirsty trying to break away from her overbearing father so that she can live on her own for fuck's sake and into this you introduce the pleasure and pain eternal of creatures who care not for your daily problems and there's something so interesting about how the largeness of the scale intersects with like the mundane reality of everyday human life well okay so why don't we go into how this film came to be? Because I, honestly, even for the 80s, I look at this and I'm like, how did this get made? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so in the UK, that's how. <laughs> well, and funnily, I mean, I'll, I'll elaborate on this more when we get to the reception, but American critics weren't very fond of this film, but UK critics were very fond of this film. Hmm. We're a bunch of Puritans. What do you want? There is that. <laughs> This is a sexy movie. But it's also very gory, which, again, that's where I'm kind of like, I get, I get the American thing. Because, again, th- this is a bizarre movie. But we know that the, the Brits also aren't very fond of violence. And maybe it was the intertwining of sex with that where they were like, oh, okay, it's it's okay. Hmm. <laughs> but by the mid-80s, Clive Barker, of course, famed queer horror creator Clive Barker, had two cinematic abominations made from his story. And those are his Aww. words. Um, <laughs> we had 1985's Underworld, which I have never seen, um, and 1986's Raw Head Rex. He took this as a sign, as if God was telling him he should direct his own film. So he somehow came into contact with a man named Christopher Figg, who would become his producer on what would become Hellraiser. Barker asked him, what is the least amount of money he could spend and expect someone to hire a first-time director? Figg gave him these parameters. <laughs> Under a million dollars, you need a house, some monsters, and pretty much unknown actors. And there you go. Barker decided to write the story as a novella, which would become the Hellbound Heart. And he decided to do this before he even wrote a script because he wanted because it allowed him to first translate his vision onto the page in a format with which he was entirely comfortable because he struggled with that when doing Underworld and Rawhead Rex. 
See, that's so interesting because I didn't know, like, I always thought it was a fast turnaround because, mm-hmm. yeah, um, Hellbound Heart comes out in 86 and then he's already got Hellraiser out in 87. Yep. So mm-hmm. I was just like, that was a really fast turnaround. I didn't realize for all the shit that I know about this uh, movie, I didn't realize that he literally wrote the novella, I guess, as like a a transition into writing a screenplay for the movie. <laughs> it's just extra work too, right? But I mean, honestly, um, it, it worked. Well, and it works because he gets to also publish this as a book, which stands on its own. And if folks want to hear a little bit more about what this looks like as an adaptation, I'm going to do a gentle plug. Brian and I actually have a limited series podcast on the anatomy of a scream pod squad, which actually tackles the Hellraiser books and how that feeds into the film. So if you want to learn more about that, except for that factoid which you just informed us of, Trace, uh, you could go and check out such sites to show on the anatomy of a screen pod squad. Well, Joe, that was the only one we had. That was that was it. So actually, it. we just covered the whole else. series. Yeah, it was. Uh, I don't really know what we did in the other three hours, but I think that's the only actual tidbit that came out of it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I will say, because I forgot to give my credit my source at the top of this, but I'm pulling a lot of this information from an interview uh, with Clive Barker with The Guardian. It's called How We Made Hellraiser from 2017, but also the very thick and dense booklet that comes with Arrow's Scarlet Box set of the first three films, which, as we noted in uh, our episode on Hellraiser 3 and maybe even Bloodline, uh, that this is out of print. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I searched again today. <laughs> nope. No box set for you. God, we're we're ridiculous. We both don't have like we are both the biggest Hellraiser fans on the planet, and neither of us have that box set. Because yeah. I think it was probably we were both going like, well, I'll get it. You know, I'm sure the price will go down, and then I'll get it then. Oh, yeah. it's gone completely, never to be yeah. seen again. Awesome, Man. awesome. Any sets, be, be it this set that the Scream Factory like Halloween or Friday Thirteenth sets, like any of that shit, you have to get that shit in the first year because you yeah. never know when the rights are gonna fuck and they have to go out of print. Yeah, you just gotta gobble it up. Yep, just credit cards, man. Just use your credit cards. <laughs> oh my god, no. That, this is not a financial Great financial advice. Do not financial advice Thurman. from Trace Thurman. <laughs> just use your credit cards. Nothing bad can happen. Oh god. <laughs> so, okay. Um, Barker also determined that this would fulfill his already committed contribution to a groundbreaking new anthology series from Dark Harvest. Uh, because you see, earlier in 1985, he had been invited to write 30,000 words for their third volume of that series, which was called Night Visions. So this is very much a two birds one stone situation for broker love it <laughs> funnily enough though that antho- that volume of that anthology was edited by none other than george rr R. martin uh so they became buds while working on that who knew hmm. that seems like it'd be a a weird pairing well, he hadn't written Game of Thrones yet, so maybe R.R. R. Martin was still figuring out all of his shit. Um, so anyway, uh, he wrote the novella again with the specific intention of filming it. This would be the first and only time Barker did this. He wrote one draft of the screenplay by December 31st, 1985, and then he did another draft in January of 86. His original vision for The Hellbound Heart, which again is the name of the novella, was a romance, a story of intense passion and desire, with a puzzle and the consequences of solving that puzzle as devices to explore the perversity and depth of those human desires. It's a conscious striving to make sense of the Faust story, aka that of a German necromancer or astrologer who sells his soul to the devil in exchange for knowledge and power. And again, Barker described this uh, mix of all that as a perverse love story. Sure. And we see it turn up in horror and horror adjacent titles all the time. See our former episode on Phantom of the Paradise. I mean, you can even think, I'm going to say it away from horror, uh, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal, actually any of those movies, really. (laughs) All the bad guys die because they want like more power and knowledge. (laughs) Always. 
Um, the inspiration from the story came from Barker himself, who worked as a hustler in the 1970s because he had no money. Believing that sex is a great leveler, his experiences there made him want to tell a story about good and evil in which sexuality was the connective tissue. And he believed that most English and American horror stories were not sexual, or if they were, they were playful about it. Um, he used the word coquettish, which sounds very um, just inherently <laughs> British to me. I love that. Such a Clive Barker word. <laughs> right? Yes, exactly. Uh, he was just tired of seeing a bunch of teenagers having sex and then getting killed. So, Joe, very much your mentality about the Friday the 13th franchise. There we go. And I'm I'm not passing shade. No, I know. <laughs> Barker probably was. Yeah, um, probably. Fig and Barker sought out to attract interest in the novella from potential financiers. So... After expanding into film production with notable successes in the early 80s, British entrepreneur Richard Branson's Virgin Films, and this is like oh Virgin, like the yep. Virgin studio, consequently would announce in 1983, a couple years prior to this, that they would be investing 14 million pounds in a series of movies. And by 1986, they had developed an interest in the Hellbound Heart with the prospect of developing it into a feature film. Eventually, and I guess they all met at Cannes somehow, because an announcement was made at the May 1986 Cannes Film Festival that Roger Corman's New World Pictures would be co-financing and co-producing this film with Virgin. Jesus Christ. Can you imagine Richard Branson, George R.R. Martin, <laughs> like, <laughs> Roger Corman? Is this a setup for a joke? I, right? <laughs> walk into a walk into yeah. a film festival. <laughs> what an absolutely bizarre group of people to help Clyde Barker bring this to the screen. So bizarre, right? Well, I guess it was a little too bizarre because Virgin drops out as a producer. And I couldn't really figure out why. I'm sorry, I could figure out why because they were like, oh yeah, they didn't like a lot of the imagery we were sending them for the film. But I'm also kind of like, you read the novella. And the novella is like hella weird and sexual. Like the opening pages of what Frank does and goes through is incredibly descriptive and very violent and sexual. I mean, I wonder if it was a thing where maybe they were looking at this because you, you forget how innovative Hellraiser is. So maybe yeah. they're, they're reading this book and like, they're never going to be able to adapt all that. Like right. they're going to have to do something at least on a practical level to make this a little bit more palatable. Mm -hmm. And Clive Barker went, uh, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he pulled it <laughs> off with, you know, less than a million dollars. Well, that scared Virgin a lot, but nevertheless, so they, they were worried, uh, both Barker and Fig, cause they're like, fuck, because new world had only agreed to do half of the production and financing. And luckily for them, they stepped up to the plate and said, you know what? Fuck it. We're going to do pay all 900,000 pounds of this and we're going to do it for you. Now, I want to point out, so this is 900,000 pounds. I did the conversion here. That is about 2.9 million US dollars today. That's just shockingly low. It's so well, low okay. for what we get. <laughs> here, that, that's the thing, you know, and I know that... I know we lament CGI. I know that I have less of a problem with bad CGI than you do, Joe. But it's mm -hmm. a thing where I'm like, well, some of these Blumhouse movies that are getting made for $5 million, why can't they do practical effects work like this? <laughs> I think it's just, it's still like a lost art, right? I mean, practical effects were what you did back in the day. It was like mat work and practical effects. And maybe if you were lucky, you could afford a Tom Savini type. But I think nowadays it, it must be cheaper to do fx but also the fx look cheaper yeah maybe it's like how like physical media is becoming like a niche group that's the same thing with right. practical effects people and the, the, because of that they're getting more expensive maybe yeah i don't know barker being a first-time filmmaker he is open about his lack of knowledge on filmmaking saying he didn't know the difference between a 10 millimeter lens and a 35 millimeter lens if you showed him a plate of spaghetti and said that was a lens he might have even believed you <laughs> 
The week before filming started, he went to the library to get a book about directing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, They had one, but it was out. So he was lucky. Um, So he walked on the set without having read any books about directing. He was winging everything here. He didn't know any of the terminology. He was just like, do this, do this, do this. Um, Luckily, the crew was very gracious and gentle with him. And helping him out was his editor, Richard Martin, who had worked with David Lean. And you may know him as the director of films like Lawrence of Arabia and Dr. Zhivago. Oh, sure. Little films. <laughs> he also had Bob Keane on hand to, uh, to do the special effects of the film. And Bob Keane had done special effects on Star Wars. And he was the one who came up with Frank's resurrection scene. So uh, they all had a really good working rhythm. There was very little, if any, conflict between people on this set. Which, again, given the subject matter, is kind of surprising. With pre-production complete and given seven weeks to shoot, Clive delivered the shooting script on July 26, 1986 and added more revisions, uh, minor revisions, on September 22nd of 1986. Principal photography got underway in London that September at a small house in Dollis Hill and a small production studio in Cricklewood. The film was shot almost entirely in sequence, which isn't often done, and I have to believe that might have been Clive Barker's lack of knowledge on filming. Yeah, I wonder, too, if they wanted to get some of the hardest sequences out of the way first, because a lot of the gore is at the beginning of the film, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, nevertheless, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if someone was like, Clive, you know, they don't really do things like this right. anymore. Like, <laughs> <laughs> He's like, well, this is how I visualized it. Well, initially, uh, New World Pictures was fine. They were not too involved with the production. They were like, hey, you got our money, do your thing, because you're Clive Barker, like, do it. But about three weeks through the six-week shoot, Stephen White, the studio executive viewing the footage, made a decision uh, that the production needed more day-to-day management and summoned his colleague, Tony Randall, asking him to get on a plane to London and work alongside Fagan Barker in getting the visual impact of the written screenplay onto film. This caused a few problems. Like, you know, people were like, oh, God, like now we have the suit coming in. And right. Randall did require more reshoots to, to redo some of the effects work in the film. And this caused a bit of tension. But luckily, Randall secured the extra funds for this. So he was like, you know what? I'm asking you to do this. I'll get you the money for it. Like, you have to worry about, like, finding a new budget for this. Which, thank goodness. Oh, absolutely. Now, this did extend principal photography by three weeks, so we have a 10-week shoot now. But he also convinced New World Pictures to add extra money, specifically to pay for an additional week of special effects reshoots to allow a more spectacular Birth of Frank sequence, as well as other effects enhancements. Uh, The goal was to make the picture more beautiful as the imagery became more unpleasant. So when he saw this footage, he was like, ooh, like some of these gore shots aren't shot extremely well so i want to redo them that was a good investment <laughs> there, I mean, yeah right can you imagine like what the original look for frank's resurrection would have been like i don't know during post-production they made barker relocate the story to america and overdub some of the accents which barker didn't love because the original story had been so english but again he had a lot of respect for randall by this point it's just so funny because when you look at the finished film it is so british like we're not <laughs> doing a good job of hiding it except for the voices overdub well because it, it's the voice of frank who's dubbed over which honestly mm-hmm. i was like god his whole performance but honestly the actor that plays frank um he is really good well sean chapman he's only playing this role when he when he's not skinless when he's skinless it's an entirely different actor playing this role yes the film was originally made under the working title of sadomasochist from beyond the grave which was barker's preferred title um <laughs> mm-hmm. when they said that is not okay uh he yeah. wanted to call the film hellbound but produce but fig said uh do hellraiser instead obviously barker wanted hellbound because of his novella but fig thought that was and this is weird too negative yeah 
Okay. Um, he thought that um, Hellraiser was a better title because it's about something coming at you instead of you going towards something, which, okay. Yeah. Unfortunately, before Hellraiser could get released, it had to go up against the ratings board and censors. It was an, so too many all, uh, thrusts. <laughs> oh my god! Yes. Yeah. So uh, I know y'all already know all this shit, but our, our listeners do not. <laughs> Hellraiser was initially banned in Ontario by the Ontario Film and Video Review Board by a three to two majority vote. The film was deemed not approved in its entirety as it contravenes community standards. Uh, it was banned because of its brutal graphic violence with bloodletting throughout, horror, degradation. And torture. Please. In August of 1987, it was passed by the Ontario Film Review Board, but only after several cuts were made to the film. Uh, New World Mutual of Canada cut about 40 seconds to get it passed with an R rating. 35 seconds of an extended torture scene featuring hooks pulling apart uh, Frank's body. Or actually, that might have been Larry's body. Were and face were removed, mm-hmm. as well as a scene of squirming rats nailed to a wall, which that definitely is in the version I saw. Yeah. And Trace, did you say three to five seconds or 35 seconds? 35 seconds. Oh my God. That's, that almost seems like it would be excessive. Like 35 seconds of just like the hooks pulling on Andrew Robinson's skin. So uh, the thing is that I think with Andrew, with with Andrew Robinson's character, I feel like that was probably fine. The way that Frank's opening scene is shot, I have to feel like that's where it was because you always see the close-ups of the three hooks, like three various hooks. And then he's very fast. We're done. And that does make sense that there would be more like of a montage, like kind of similar to what they cut out of Event Horizon, where clearly they had like a lot of footage that they could have gone to, but they Mm -hmm. had to trim it down to the flashes you see. You definitely get that same sense in Hellraiser with Frank's hole when he's describing what he went through. Like they probably shot a bunch of stuff. So yeah, I guess that that makes a little bit more sense. But honestly, for for effect's sake, I think, because again, normally I'm like, no, I want to see this shit. Like I want to see what's happening. But in the since this is the first scene, I think it makes more sense to show us the before the hooks and then just what the aftermath is as mm-hmm. we move into kind of the mystery of what this is as we go forward. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, so Canada was not the only place this film had problems. Uh, in the United States, the MPAA gave the film an X rating. And so I do have a list of cuts here. Um, the seduction scene between Julia and Frank was initially a lot more explicit. It had some spanking in it that the MPAA hated, uh, so they had yeah. to cut that out. Okay. Um, they told him he was allowed two consecutive buttock thrusts from Frank, but three was deemed obscene. Oh my God. <laughs> two and a half shots were excised from the first hammer murder, including a close-up of the hammer lodged in the victim's head. In the scene where Julia murders another man, um, the actor playing the victim felt that it made sense for him to do so naked. The nude murder scene was shot, but ultimately replaced with a semi-clothed version to appease the MPAA. Yeah, that wouldn't have flown. Close-ups of Kersey sticking her hand into Frank's stomach, exposing his guts were cut out, which I'm a little bummed about that because that is not shown well enough in the final cut. Yeah. Barker actually did go on record, though, saying their main issues were less to do with the violence of the film and more to do with the film's more erotic scenes. So, mm-hmm. again, that spanking. Spanking was the issue <laughs> and the thrusts and whatever. They were like, nope, nope, nope. Get the sodomy out of there, but it's okay. Bring in the knife. We're good. Yeah, I mean, sure. is there any more like quintessential american sensibility like can you maybe come back on the sex and maybe just kill a few more people that'll be fun right right? the kids will like that (laughs) i don't talk about the soundtrack that much but this again in a what could have been scenario because barker 
originally wanted the English experimental electronic music group Coil to perform the music for the film, but that notion was flat out rejected by New World. And I really want to know what that music was going to be, because I will say that uh, they get Christopher Young to do the score for this, and he was suggested by Tony Randall, again, who's you know helping them out with all this, uh, because he had heard his work on Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2 and Toby Hooper's Invaders from Mars. I love Young's score for this movie. Oh, yes. I have to wonder what the vibe of this Coil band would have been like. Yeah, I wonder if it would have been more punk and more sort of alternative, because you very much get the impression that a lot of the vibe of this film drawing from Barker's personal experiences would have been sort of like that underground S&M kind of scene, right? So I could imagine an alternative kind of electronica vibe. Yeah, I'm almost picturing like the uh, the soundtrack from Knife and Heart or something along those uh, lines. Maybe, um, but even then I'm like, I don't think that fits this very well. But I mean, because Barker, you know, getting inspiration from his S&M club days. I mean, he was like, oh yeah, it was the first time I saw people getting pierced for fun and I was introduced to blood spitting that day. So I just wonder if it was maybe the music he heard in the club. So it, like that was the vibe he wanted. Yeah, I could imagine. Christopher Young, by the way, would make many return trips to hell because he did score Hellbound Hellraiser 2. And about 20 years later, uh, Sam Raimi's Drag Me to Hell. There we go. Hellraiser had its first public showing at the Prince Charles Cinema on September 10th, 1987, and received a wide release in the United States a little over a week later on September 18th, where it opened up against fellow newcomers Fatal Attraction, The Pickup Artist, and The Principal. It opened in the number three spot with four and a half million dollars. Now, for comparison's sake, Fatal Attraction was number one with 7.7 million, but that movie stayed in the number one spot for eight weeks and went on to gross $156 million. Apparently she wouldn't be ignored. (laughs) (laughs) That movie's a fucking juggernaut, so. I mean, could you imagine a movie today staying in the, well, I guess maybe Spider-Man had that, but like staying in Mm -hmm. the number one spot for eight weeks. (laughs) Yeah, unheard of. Hellraiser was not so lucky, but since it had a budget of under, uh, well, a million pounds, it didn't matter. It went on to gross $14.6 million domestically and almost $800,000 in the UK. Critical reception was mostly positive. We are looking at a 71% on Rotten Tomatoes with an average score of 6.5 out of 10. Uh, Letterbox users have given it a score of 7 out of 10. As I said earlier, the UK was a bit more polite and kind to this movie. We've got Barker's dazzling debut creates such an atmosphere of dread that the astonishing set pieces simply detonate in a chain reaction of cumulative intensity. A serious, intelligent, and disturbing horror film. Uh, The best horror film ever to be made in Britain. Whereas in the US, (laughs) we've got a cast of singularly uninteresting actors. Wow. The special effects aren't bad, only damp. A dark, (laughs) frequently disturbing, and occasionally terrifying film. Some critics critique the framing of close-ups and the generic score. Again, I don't understand that. The film falls apart at its climax. And then, of course, Roger Ebert, uh, I'll give him the longest blurb here, gives the film one half of a star out of four and called it as dreary a piece of goods as has masqueraded as horror and many a long, cold night. This is one of those movies you sit through with mounting dread as the fear grows inside of you that it will indeed turn out to be feature length. This is a movie without wit style or reason and the true horror is that actors were made to portray and technicians to realize it's bankruptcy of imagination see and then people wonder why i don't like roger ebert and it's just like it's shit like that i literally don't know what movie he's watching because none of that applies 
like I get what he contributed to film criticism and there are like a lot of things about his personality I like, but he was such a wiener when it came to horror movies. Like yeah. he was just he like, I mean, they're they're both infamous for uh, both he and uh Siskel just like tore into like the old like Friday the thirteenth movies and oh, all sure. those kinds yeah. of things. Which, you know, if you want to have that argument, I'll have that argument. But to say that Hellraiser is lacking in imagination mm-hmm. based off of what I have, like, where have you ever seen anything like this before? I mean, that's right. the, the, the bankruptcy of imagination. Like, you can say you don't like it, but to say there's no imagination on display here. What the fuck is that? Mm-hmm. Goddamn ridiculous. Well, I will say this kind of feeds into one of the criticisms that I have with how people label this film. I see this film turn up on a lot of people's lists of slashers. And what? I'm I'm not gonna lie. I'm I don't want to be gatekeepery when it comes to things like semantics. But to me, this has never been a slasher. Like Pinhead is not a slasher villain. I don't like to see him equated with uh, Michael Myers, you know, Freddy, all the others. It just I'm like, no, these are a completely different type of film. At least the first couple, which makes you wonder to what degree, like it makes you wonder to what degree people who are saying that are retconning it based off of like part three where it starts to kind of get into that slasher realm. Even then it's only kind of like wading into the slasher, but like kiddie pool a little bit. But I think it's also because, I mean, I I, I, I have to talk to some of these people, but I'm like, I wonder if these people just haven't actually watched the fucking movies and they Mm. think, Oh, it's pinhead killing people. Therefore slasher. Yeah, maybe. That's so weird to me. But um, if, everyone, if you have not seen a Hellraiser film and you did not watch Hellraiser 3 and 4 with us for our episodes, um, they are not slashers. <laughs> They're not slashers. <laughs> they, don't, they, they don't fit the basic criteria of a slasher film. Yeah, there's maybe one like moment in in 3. Like You could maybe argue that the club like massacre scene was kind of right. getting into that realm. And a little bit of like the... There's a little bit of like latter-day uh, Nightmare on Elm Street elements to... When the new Cenobites show up. But yeah, mm-hmm. even then, like, it's still not a slasher movie, at yeah. least for me. Well, why don't we move into what this film is, Joe? Let's go. Let's start with your plot. <laughs> All right. Okay. So we start by zooming out of either the puzzle box or the lemon configuration, depending on what you want to call it. Mm-hmm. We are in a Moroccan market where Frank, played by Sean Chapman, is making what we can deduce is an illegal purchase also like first red flag no price right <laughs> like no 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 nothing is free <laughs> come on man yeah i will say the the only thing that i really don't feel has aged well in this film is the not uncomfortable xenophobia of like i went to a foreign market and i purchased right. this thing and oh lord it brought hell upon me it's capital e exotic yeah, it's. I wasn't even thinking about that because all I could think about was one of them had the dirtiest fingernails I have ever seen on a human being in my life. No, that was Frank, That's and Frank. I noticed yeah, that okay. every goddamn time. It's so gross. <laughs> it's the grossest. Like, dude, like, I know you are on like this obsessive quest for the ultimate sexual experience. Mm-hmm. Cut your fucking nails, or at yeah. least clean them, because that is gross. They're black, solid, so yeah. gross. Mm. Yeah. Uh, this is where I'm going to bring in my one and only source for this episode, because I feel like the rest of us can do the heavy lifting with a lot of the other stuff. But mm-hmm. I'm going to refer to Mark Richard Adams's chapter in Clive Barker, Dark Imaginer. And his chapter is called Clive Barker's Queer Monsters Exploring Transgression, Sexuality, and the Other. And uh, 
he really focuses on Frank, which is one of the reasons why I said this whole movie is just filled with queer characters, because Richard Adams spends his entire article talking about Frank as a queer othered figure. So kicking things off here, he says, when Frank is first introduced, his body is coated as hypermasculine. He dresses in tight denim trousers and a clinging white vest, accentuating his body and his unshaven face completes the image of a sexualized 1980s male. And I will say, if you didn't know that Clive Barker was gay, the way he shoots Frank throughout this film is <laughs> like, you know that Clive Barker has a type and it looks like Sean Chapman. Uh, I've, admittedly, I've never because I, I, I've never like gone into a deep thought process with this film in the previous times I've watched it until now. I've never really cons- thought about uh, Frank as a queer figure, but now I'm going back into thinking. I wonder if, um, like, whenever we find the pictures later, mm-hmm. they're only with women. But I wonder if there was ever like an inkling of Barker's that he's like, let me get one with a man in there. Um, that maybe what wasn't allowed to be in the movie. <laughs> well, rest assured, I will bring in many, many more quotes from Richard Adams that may help to convince you. By, oh, oh, you don't have to, I mean, I'm open to it. I just never thought about it. So, but by all means. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's because people look at the film kind of like what you said, like you've got Pinhead on the cover. When we think of Hellraiser, we think of the Cenobites because they're so visually memorable. But yeah, there's a lot lurking beneath the surface of the human characters in this film as well. Well, and bear in mind, I believe the ratio. So we have a 93 minute movie, which, uh, God bless. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the Cenobites are on screen for eight of those minutes like this is a real hannibal lecter situation they are an eight a memorable eight minutes however oh there yeah. yeah very much so okay so we follow frank back to a dark sweaty room and he begins to solve the puzzle box and we see lights begin to appear in the slats of the wall and really before he can even begin to understand what's happening we see hooks pierce his flesh and he screams immediately by the way these effects look so good so fucking good and like combination with the score the way barker is shooting it feels Like, I'm so intrigued. I have no idea what's about to happen, but the visual possibilities are tantalizing. And even so, again, I'm going back to that review that was complaining about all the close-ups, but I think that, again, I mean, I mean, I guess it's cliche to say, oh, close-up instills claustrophobia, but since we are spending the majority of this film in this cramped house, Mm -hmm. that all seems very intentional to me. And Trace, um, you know, just going back to talking about how much was probably cut out of that initial sequence mm. and you talking about how it's actually more effective this way. I 100% agree because at this point, this whole thing's a tease. You're not supposed mm-hmm. to know exactly what's going on. Right. So if, I feel like if they had dived too much into like all the gory glory of, of what that scene might have been originally, I think it takes a little something away because you get just enough to see like, oh, man, he got real fucked up. His face is not on his body anymore. Like, uh-huh. I want to see more. And they're like, oh, you're you're going to have to wait a little bit. I think I, the first time I saw this was probably probably in high school. This is probably when I was like, you know, finally allowed to watch R-rated movies. I was like Netflixing all those, like, you know, your iconic horror films. Right. And I just remember being so confused as to why anyone would want to open this puzzle box. Because my mind, like, I heard the lines about distinguishing between pain and pleasure. But my knowledge of S&M was very minimal. So I was not, I was not tuned into what this movie was trying to say with those themes. And that's hilarious, Trace. So one of the things that Brian and I spend a lot of time talking about both on that limited series pod, but also when we covered all the Hellraiser films for Corpse Club was the idea that this isn't about hell. This is about the tension between 
pain and pleasure. Like, there's something to be said for people saying, oh, yeah, you know, Barker infused his S&M sensibilities and even his queer lifestyle with, like, sadomasochism and blah, blah, blah. They misread that as, oh, it the only thing you would get out of this is the hell. Like, you would be torn apart. It would be super painful. And it's like, no, the whole point is that there's some kind of pleasure in there as well. Like, these aren't avenging angels or, like, demons who are here just to hurt you. They're here to deliver a promise that you said you wanted when you opened that box. And also, I mean, look, because obviously a big conversation point in any discussion of snm is going to be consent and while many people after they open the box they're like no 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 Uh (laughs) technically solving that box is you giving consent yes (laughs) which you know obviously this is a horror movie so they're playing in a gray area when it comes to that you know there's something they're pushing the narrative but i've talked about this a few times where they call it hellraiser and he called the novella hellbound heart but I think hell here is just more of shorthand to be able to say, like, going to a real bad place. Yeah. You know, this this isn't like a punitive thing. You know, you're not going to Dante's Inferno where you're going to a certain level based off of what you've done in life. You know, you're going there because essentially you asked for it. Um, And, you know, one of the things that. You know, and this might just be completely headcanon for me, but, you know, one of the other things I say about this a lot is I do like to imagine there are some people who have opened that box and really enjoyed what they got when they opened it. It just, Frank was not that person because he is, at heart for me, like a vanilla square who thinks he's edgy and sexy. But th- And that's also, though, where I would, I mean, again, I know this isn't really labeled as cosmic horror, but I do think it fits that bill. Again, if we're not going to say it's hell, I think that it puts it even more into cosmic horror territory. Mm-hmm. I absolutely love this as cosmic horror. And I think it's also interesting because it's cosmic horror where you're used to the consequences of it being like insanity. And right. you don't really get that here. You know, you get Frank obviously doesn't want to be there and he has a lot of uh, a lot of physical effects that come from that but he never loses his mind. He doesn't go insane and nobody like you know we'll talk later about Christy like a lot of people in that situation I think would just check out mentally and she right. doesn't and I think that's an important part of this story. Well, mm-hmm. okay, but well, we'll get, we'll, we, we'll get yeah, back we'll to get it there. later. Yeah. No, but, but, but no, her first reaction after seeing Frank is very, very – she just goes catatonic in the street. And I was like, that All is right. a real reaction. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think it's important, Brian, to build on your statement that it's like this isn't about insanity in, in that way. And I think I've heard people – and we talked about this, Trace, when we covered Event Horizon on the Patreon for our audio commentary earlier this summer. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people say, oh, that's Hellraiser in space. And I'm just yeah. like, uh, kind of. But for me, that's like, oh, we found Hell accidentally by teleporting this ship. Whereas Hellraiser, to me, is it's far more complicated and nuanced because you have to always factor in the pleasure principle. But also you're thinking to yourself, no, fuckers, Hellraiser 4 is Hellraiser in space. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we already have Hellraiser in space. What the hell's wrong with you? Um, I will say, and I I love the look of of his face as like puzzle pieces. I I do have an issue with the fact that his eyes are still there because that doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Right. But it looks really cool. It does, yeah. So this is also our visual introduction to female Cenobite, played by Grace Kirby and the one and only Pinhead, 
played by Doug Bradley. I love that neither of these characters have any dialogue. We have no idea who they are, what they're doing here. And then it's just a snap, you know, Pinhead solves this box and the whole room is clean, spick and span. And this movie is fucking off to the races. <laughs> I do want to say, though, so Pinhead actually has some, like, the origins of this character, which I think in the in the novella he's just called, like, the lead Cenobite. Like, he's, he's in, I don't think he goes by Pinhead until the second one. And even then, it was a construct of people, like, viewers calling him Pinhead. It was fans. He's often referred to as the high priest. But he's actually not even the lead in the novella. It would be the female Cenobite who is. Gotcha. Oh, well. Hmm. Put that in your back pocket. I know, put it in your back pocket. <laughs> but no, so he's combined from characters in Clive's early plays and images from some of his early like short films. I won't go into them all, but the first identifiable stop on the journey is a character written by a then 21-year-old Clive Barker and played by a 19-year-old Doug Bradley. Back in 1973, it was a musical called Hunters in the Snow that Bra- uh, that Barker wrote in a musical stage at Liverpool's Everyman Theatre. But this story um, is of great artists as outsiders with werewolves and an undead inquisitor named the Dutchman. And this yeah. was the character that was played by Bradley. Okay. The Dutchman was tasked by the church with unmasking torturing and destroying the unclean and non-believers and one of his lines a sample line of this why do you murmur why do you dread the calm symmetry of death is there not succor to be drawn from oblivion the patterns must be complete birth is but the first preparation for death so does that not reek of pinhead to you <laughs> oh my god i just love Barker's prose so much mm-hmm. like I could imagine some people saying like oh, it's a lot of purple prose he's just too flowery with it but I just think there's something so I don't know maybe it's like the appropriate amount of melodrama to me but it sings it sounds like modern Shakespeare to me well it's um I admit that I've never read one of his novels before so I don't know how it plays over like feature length for whatever way you call it for a book <laughs> Novel. I would say that for the novella for this, and I've read like his books of blood, like mm-hmm. it works very well in short bursts in those like 30 page short stories. Yeah. And it's also one of those things where if you want to see like the difference between Clive Barker's ability to, you know, create a phrase and, and to work prose and someone trying to do that and it not really working the same way, mm-hmm. watch this and then watch Bloodline. And then you'll yeah. see like when people take what they think is like a Barker-esque way to talk and instead turn Pinhead into a Bond villain. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's very correct. That's a very yeah. correct assumption. Oh, boy. Okay, so after the room has been cleaned, we glide down the stairs to the front door. And this to me is like masterful camera work in terms of showing us the geography of this house and Mm -hmm. giving us the setting. Because as you said, Trace, the whole movie almost entirely takes place in this house. It is a character unto itself. So it's really important that we get a feel for it. And I mean, again, this house is tiny. It's like we have this like living space right here and then the dining room and then just whatever the upstairs is, which is just the three rooms. Mm-hmm. Yep. One thing I've never really seen that I would be interested to know is like where they got their hands on the house. Like, was right. it somebody in the crew? Like, this is my house. You can use it. Was it they they scouted and they found something that, you know, I, I would imagine wasn't occupied at the time or something like that. Like, I've, mm-hmm. I've never really seen like, how did they come upon this house? Because it was perfect for what they needed yeah 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 
Uh, okay, so we are introduced to Larry, who is played by Andrew Robinson, and his uncertain wife, Julia, the one and only Claire Higgins. Okay, wait, Joe, get it out. W- w- why do you love this character? Oh my god, how much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> and then Just make sure episode. you leave double that amount of time for when I come in and also talk about why I love her. So... As I said, this was like my big foray into horror films, and the film not only showed me that horror films could be infused with other genres, so as I said, I consider this more of a melodrama with horrific elements, but I was fascinated with how people confuse who the villain of the film is, Mm -hmm. because the villain of this film is fucking Julia, but she's also incredibly, I don't want to say sympathetic, because she makes some really fucking bad choices, But she's also so fucking fascinating. Like, I love her arc and her journey. I love the fact that she ends up becoming an evil stepmother in this film, but really into the second film. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I, I just think Claire Higgins' performance is fucking masterful. She commands the screen in every inch of the frame that she's taking up space in. And I don't know, like, there's something about her that really pops. And I feel like particularly when we talk about villains, we never talk about her. But even when we talk about female villains, she always gets forgotten. Well, and also, I'm glad you even said Ark, because I, I, in the back of my mind, I always remember her as being hissably evil from minute one. And that is nope. not the case here. Like, mm-hmm. I, And you can see this in Claire Higgins' performance, like, as she struggles with, do I want to do this? Do I not want to do this? And of course, she ultimately chooses to. But it is believable, for the most part, <laughs> from beginning to end. Yeah, I mean, girl, she she goes further than maybe you should. And we can get our yayas out and say, like, man, how good was that dick that she would do all this? Like, okay, <laughs> we've said it all before, and it's a great joke. But also, that's underselling what this character is actually delivering. I mean, this is an unabashed woman villain. Mm-hmm. And it's not something that's based in pain or the service to somebody else. Yes, again, you could make that argument that she's doing this for Frank. But for me, the importance of her arc is that you're realizing that she's not doing it for Frank. She's doing it for the possibilities of what it could mean for herself. Yes. Right. And it's selfish and it's awful. Yeah. And she's an awful person and I will forever love her for it. Right. Well, let me pull in then this quote from Barker because this kind of encapsulates what he was trying to do or what, he, what, what, appealed, to him, what appealed to him so much about this story. So he says, we all have an affinity for monsters to some extent. The moments when Karloff smokes a cigar and listens to the blind man play the violin in Bride of Frankenstein, or the look of tenderness that crosses King Kong's face when he realizes that Fay Ray is too precious to kill. Too often, those moments aren't allowed to be talked about by the monster, who is either mute or grunts. Mm -hmm. I want to give monsters the freedom to talk about themselves. I like hugely the clarity of debate. Where Frank can say to Julia, we belong to each other now for better or worse, like love, only for real. That's a monster's viewpoint, a monster's idea of what love is. It's purer than if they'd gone up the aisle together. One of the things I tried to do in this picture is to lose any real sense of who constitutes the really good and the bad, not unlike the Cenobites themselves. It's not as simple as monsters representing all the bad stuff in our lives. We have very ambivalent responses to them. They can be very attractive. We may even envy them. Think of the powers of classical monsters, powers of flight, transformation, infinite sexual allure, the ability to evade death. These powers are not negligible, nor are they all negative. 
I'd pay a little for a few of those. And the weird thing to me, too, is I, I've read academics who have accused this film of presenting otherness and i.e. queerness as negative. Like they say, oh, you know, Frank is a deviant and he's he's a terrible villain. Julia is an adulteress and therefore she's terrible. And then, of course, the Cenobites are fucking terrifying. And I'm just like, how do you not see the layers of this and like these monsters are so intriguing they're so just messy and weird and i feel like they represent this broad spectrum and to put them into a little box is misreading the film in my opinion but i also think again like we talk about this so many times with things like this where it's removing any nuance from the from the scenario and i do think a part of it is because again i think people see them a little bit of themselves in either Frank or Julia or both. And I think Mm -hmm. they're afraid to come to terms with those feelings because again, it is evil. Society says these are evil and they are evil. And we are afraid to admit that we sometimes have evil tendencies. Yeah. This movie is all about embracing that dark corner of yourself. You know, and I think it's a little bit of a precursor too, to what you're going to see explored more in Nightbreed where Barker is taking these, classic monsters or you know people you would think classically think of as monsters and villains and showing you that like monster doesn't have to equate to villain mm-hmm. you know and i think he's a lot more severe in this movie and he's making the the monsters and the villains much less sympathetic but he's also kind of daring you to see yourself in everybody in this movie you know right. be it the be it kirsty be it the cenobites be it frank or be it julia well and the thing with julia even i mean she fucks frank you know like before her wedding so it's kind of like one of those things where it's like why did you go through with this but honestly again and i'm not like sympathizing with this character because she does make she she makes a horrible decision she betrays the man she's about to marry doesn't just fucking call off the wedding because it's inconvenient for her i guess like we don't really know why this happens but at the same time i feel bad for her because yeah she does seem trapped and maybe that's bad because it's like she has a good life with larry but larry's also for lack of a better term, boring. Oh my god, he's the ultimate in boring, and that's what's so great about Andrew Robinson's performance. Yeah, <laughs> and but but again, I, I don't dislike Larry as a character. I, I, no. and I, I he's fine. But again, when you have the taste of what Frank has given her, yes. which is sensual seduction, which mm-hmm. is not what she's getting from Larry. I mean, again, it also mirrors what's going on with this box and what what Frank is trying to get because he's been desensitized to all these things because he's experienced most of the pleasures of the flesh except for this extremity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I feel like that's that's the piece that we don't really know about Julia, but I feel like it's also relatively easy to suss out, right? She was happy with Larry until Frank came along. Yes. But then Frank leaves. So she's got nothing else. And she's trying to recapture. I I think she's trying to get comfortable with complacency and normality again. But the problem is, is that like Frank, once you've tasted that danger and that that level of sensuality, someone who's as milk toast as Larry is never going to cut it. Well, it's okay. The one thing I love about Higgins' performance is actually in the flashbacks when we see her first mm-hmm. hook up with she's Frank. So simple and vulnerable, but she's <laughs> smiling. She is genuinely yeah. happy, and we yeah. never see that again outside of no. this flashback. No, and that's when she becomes the Ice Princess. I think there is one moment where you see her truly happy, but we'll we'll come back to that. Oh, no, but, 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 I was, again, I compare things to drugs so many times, but yeah, it's like oh, like you know that whole thing about if you ever have sex when you're on ecstasy, like you're never going to want to have sex again because it's going to be so good, you'll never have sex that good again. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. That's what this was with her and Frank. She's constantly chasing that high and she cannot she get it without Frank. Well, and that's why I think, you know, I, I admonish people for reducing this down to how good was the dick joke. But the reality is, it's like, yeah, she she experienced something and now she really she wants to get back to that. It, it's more than just the dick. It's the mystery. It's the bad boyness of it all. It's, I think, even breaking her out of this constrained heteronormativity like sure bed down with larry he's boring but he'll be safe and she's like or i could go after this dangerous thing Mm -hmm. and my life could be completely unpredictable and wild but isn't that better isn't that more exciting and that's the thing she's not going after frank she's going after as you said this dangerous thing yeah she's chasing the high as you said trace Mm -hmm. and the the moments where you see her where you see like that that stone cold face kind of you know crack and you see that smile come back. There's two moments where that happens. The first is the one that, of course, Joe, you and I both love, where she's killed her first guy with a hammer, mm-hmm. and she's you know she's in just a bra, she's splashed with blood. Mm-hmm. Yes. You see her kind of like start looking into the mirror, mm-hmm. and you just see just the slightest upturn on the sides of her mouth. Yeah. She's horrified at what she's done, but she's also like, I kind of liked it. And the way Barker frames it, you're so in her face. You are inches away from her. You're seeing every little detail because it is such a slight little smile. But mm-hmm. there is a difference, though, between the smile we get in the flashback and that smile. Because there's, oh, a conf- there's a confidence in that smile that was not there before. Yeah, because she's she's starting to revel in her power, right? Like, I, I routinely refer to Julia Cotton as the baddest bitch in horror because mm-hmm. you you can see that in the arc. Like, she is transcending into an absolutely horrific person, mm-hmm. but you get to watch her learn to like it. Well, also, I would argue that Julia is the protagonist of this film. She 100% is. She gets so much screen time. <laughs> like, yeah, we, I know Kirstie comes into it. She's our final girl. But like the protagonist of this movie is still Julia. <laughs> Correct. And it's, you know, and like the, the second moment that you get where Julia is truly happy is during the montage of when she's just at this point, she's comfortable with it. And she's just knocking yeah. these putzes over left and right. Mm-hmm. You get that shot of her just sitting by herself in the living room. Drinking. Just perfectly content and she's not with larry she's not with frank she's by herself and she just could not be happier and Mm -hmm. that i think is just like good for you julia that's amazing i love that for you well and she also looks fucking amazing yeah dressed to the nines to sit in her house yeah she looks almost feline in her like sexual energy and confidence and you're just like oh she's dangerous and bad and it's like, I'm really turned on right now. And I wonder, too, like, because we, we don't get a kind of backstory for Julia outside of just her relationship with Frank. So we don't know if there was a reason why she feels so lonely and blah, blah, blah. And I'm I'm glad that we don't get that. But I also think that the, the reason people are so immediately, like, lumping Julia into this, oh, she's an evil cunt box, which, again, she is. She but is. there's just more to it than that. Mm-hmm. As you said, Brian, she's just looking out for her own happiness and granted she is doing it in very selfish selfish ways but these are not things that i'll speak for myself i am foreign to i mean have i wanted to fuck someone ever so i could better myself yes right have i done it sometimes yes sometimes no and i am (laughs) i mean i've never done it like this but again i'm comfortable admitting that and saying i've made bad choices in my life and i feel like some people are just afraid to say either they have made those choices or that they have thought about making those choices 
Trace, have you ever made those choices and then like sat in your living room with a martini, just smiling to yourself about it? <laughs> you know, I'm going to now, actually. Yeah. <laughs> My God. After this recording, when, when I when I fuck all over. <laughs> I was going to say, like, the, this is what we feel at our peak, when we have achieved what we are truly wanting and desiring and we feel satisfied. It's like, just sit like Julia Cotton on your couch and just savor a drink. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Okay, so it's been 10 years since the pair has been in this house, and he wants to move in here. And he even says things like, you know, we could be happy here. And she just kind of looks at him like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. Like, <laughs> and he says, you're, you're so on your, boring. You're on your home turf. Okay, where exactly is your home turf? Oh, my God. This where is where are the, you? <laughs> the U.S. setting does not make any sense in this movie. You're like, no, this is the U.K. <laughs> Uh, so they begin to look around. She's very unimpressed with all of this. But uh, then he gets a phone call from his adult daughter, Kirsty, played by also the one and only Ashley Lawrence. I do like her. I, I, on this doc, There's a documentary on this um, this Blu-ray. And yeah, one of the men is like, if there's a wink link in the film, I do think it's Ashley Lawrence. I think the role is underwritten. And I do think that Lawrence is like this being her debut role. I don't think she's really able to give it her all. She's fine. But it's not as good as everything else in the film that's going on. I'm actually inclined to disagree with that statement. Yeah, I think she doesn't shine as much as everybody else does. But I don't think that's really her job in this movie. Yeah, Like, Mm -hmm. she is – if there's anything missing to the performance, it's because of the role. Because this isn't meant to be as meaty as Julia. It's not her movie. Yeah, exactly. And she will get her movie next time. (laughs) Oh my god. Mm-hmm. And like, if you want to talk about growth and ascension, watching her face off against Julia in the Leviathan in part two is all the more satisfying because you're finally getting to see Kirsty's movie. Well, also, Hell and Hellraiser 2, well, actually, no, both of these movies are so inherently feminine, right? Yes. Because this is very much Julia's movie, but that second movie, we get Julia and Kirsty's really front and center, and then uh, mm-hmm. the other girl. So it's only Shenard who's there as, like, the male figure in, the, in that sequel. Yeah, and if you want to talk about the fucking weak link of that sequel, it's Dr. Shenard. Disagree, but okay. I mean, I like him. I think he's interesting, but also when he comes in, I'm like, yeah, but it was Julia versus Kirsty. <laughs> yeah, I see what you're saying. Well, you know what? We will discuss Hellbound, the, the the fourth of these four Hellraiser movies we've covered eventually. <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm I'm angling to get as many of these motherfuckers in as we can. Hey, we saved the best for last. Yeah. Uh okay. Well, we'll we'll hash out that battle as well when we talk about the second <laughs> one. Okay, so Larry is trying to get Kirsty to come and live with them, and she is like, "Dad, I'm an adult. Can you please let me live with?" We'll find out more about Steve later. But. Oh my god! Okay, I'm gonna tell you right now. You cut Steve out of this movie. It's a five star film for me. Steve <laughs> doesn't make a lick of difference, but there are some great moments where he gets punched in the face. Yes, I'm just like I like their introductory scene when they first meet when he's flirting by with that cigarette in his mm-hmm. mouth. Everything after that, I don't know why he's in this movie outside of we need a man to comfort Kirsty. Well, I do enjoy the fact that in most movies, like I don't know if you've ever heard the term like someone being a lamp usually mm-hmm. it's it's when you're talking about how there's a woman in a movie and you could replace her with a lamp in that movie and it would make no difference to the plot <laughs> i like that steve is the lamp in this movie like he Absolutely. does nothing he, he like i would even argue when we get to the end i would argue that like they reference that 
to a certain extent in the movie. Like they have a little metatextual conversation about that. I kept <laughs> thinking he was going to die in the climax. Every time I watch it, I'm like, oh, he dies in the scene. I don't remember if he survives. Nope. He survives. <laughs> he's, he's not interesting enough to die in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. Uh, but um, as Larry is talking to Kirsty, we see Julia going through. Basically, it's like a flop house kind of deal, yeah. right? Like Frank was squatting here. He's got a shitty mattress on the floor. He's got various drug paraphernalia. And then he's got mm, lightly S&M photos with a variety of different women. And uh, Julia picks up the hottest pinup photo and pockets it for later. She got a finger herself later. Basically, yeah. I mean... Sean Chapman, very, very attractive. I can very see the sweaty. appeal. I don't mind it. So, yeah. uh, okay. So, <laughs> cut to Sunday, just in case you didn't want to, you know, delve into some of the religious connotations of this film. We're going to move in on a Sunday. Julia catches the attention of these sweaty movers. Must have been very hot when they were filming because everyone just has that nice glisten of uh, like a sheen on them. <laughs> Oh, this is one point where uh, Ashley Lawrence, it's like dripping off of her chin. It, yeah, I think it's very, very hot. But I love the the sort of subtle use of, okay, these are obviously gross movers that are helping to move Larry and Julia in. But also, it, it's visually coding that Julia can pick up men, right? Like, she will attract the attention of men very easily. I also love to always think about how when... Doug Bradley was like offered to yeah. be in this movie. He got two choices. Like you can either be this, this Cenobite or you can be one of the movers. And he legitimately considered mm -hmm. being one of the movers so that his like natural face would show up in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's the Freddy Krueger challenge, right? Where it's like, you're under so much prosthetics. No one will ever take you as your own actor. You will always just be the character. And I do feel that for Doug Bradley, like he has lived in the shadow of Pinhead his entire career, but also on the flip side, what a fucking legacy. Well, I mean, I don't know about you, but his true legacy for me is the villain in Wrong Turn 5. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> we will cover Wrong Turn 5 someday as well, and oh, fuck, no, we have a lot to first. talk about. <laughs> We're not doing 5. <laughs> Well, now you kind of have to because you brought up Doug Bradley being in it. So now oh it's kind of you can't terrible. leave people hanging on that. L I mean, look, th th that franchise is not filled with any good apples except for like two. Mm -hmm. But um, it's no Hellraiser. <laughs> five is definitely one of the worst. <laughs> yeah, five is atrociously bad. Okay, so Kirstie ends up arriving on foot. We get a view, a perspective from outside of the house for the first time, and we can see that it's a little bit run down. It's also isolated, and that will become important when we start to murder people in the attic. So uh, Larry and Kirstie decide that she is going to be nice to Julia. So we're setting up some gentle exposition about character relationships, but I love how organic it all feels. You know, it's very much... Oh, daughter and stepmother do not get along well, so there's going to be a little bit of tension there. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, Julia is upstairs basically having masturbatory flashback fantasies about the day that Frank arrived in the rain to ruin her fucking wedding. I guess I didn't even think, do y'all think that, um, because this is intercut with Larry, you know, moving the, um, mm -hmm. the piece of furniture upstairs. Do you think then that, that it's a nail that cuts his hand is intentional to be like, like the stigmata? I wasn't seeing that so much as like necessarily the, like the religious iconography, but more just the juxtaposition of mm -hmm. like, 
again, the, the sexuality with the, the violence, you know, so she's approaching that climax either in the flashback or maybe on the third floor of the house as she's thinking about it, Mm -hmm. you know, and they're thrusting that, that, that mattress and getting it closer and closer, you know, and then I guess you could say the nail does sort of penetrate Larry's hand. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, I, I think that's kind of more the focus although there there definitely was barker does talk about using some religious iconography just mm-hmm. to kind of like sparse through like i think when they first get there there's like some like nativity stuff yeah. Yeah. while they're moving things like that and then when kirstie arrives they're all like all oh. of the the mary magdalene statues are out on the drive <laughs> oh yes yeah. wait, wait, joe i'm sorry M- mary and mary magdalene are two very different people sure. <laughs> both of those mary magdalene's the prostitute we don't say prostitute mary magdalene well back then they did but <laughs> mary magdalene's the sex worker mary is mother of god mother of jesus <laughs> yeah the same thing just mary She's no mary no last name yeah, because God forbid the prostitute were the son of God or the, right. the mother of God, right? <laughs> and the prostitute gets a last name. Right. Important distinction. Um, <laughs> I'm with Brian. I like to think of this movie. I mean, it's not it follows level of like, be careful who you engage with in terms of sexual conduct and activity. But mm-hmm. I always looked at this as like, yeah, there's a bit of a body count and some bloodletting when you choose to engage in carnal activities. And I don't see it as a conservative approach to sexuality, but it's like violence and sexuality and otherness are all wrapped up in one and the same game in this movie. It's like how we talk about horror and comedy. It's uh, violence and sex. Right. Complementary and contradictory. I also like to think of it as her desire for Frank is part of what brings him back. You know, right. It's the, the, the coincidence of her lusting, lusting after him and thinking of him mm-hmm. right when the mechanism or the catalyst for bringing him back happens. You know, I, I don't think is uh, it might be a coincidence in the movie, but I think thematically it's not a coincidence. Right. Yeah. Well, especially if you think of this as her film and she is the, the person driving it, she has the agency, then it also kind of makes sense in that regard. Yeah. Just to reiterate that the focus on Frank is like highly sexualized. So when he is introduced in these flashbacks, he's introduced like in the rain. We barely see Julia in these scenes so that we can focus on the full body of Sean Chapman. And there's like this lingering emphasis of Frank as a spectacle that foreshadows the queer sexual identity that's going to be revealed when his body is literally deconstructed and then restructured. So we're very we're very interested in Frank's body overall throughout the course of this movie. We're about to get really acquainted with Frank's body. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we do get to see some some aggressive sex in these flashbacks as well before uh, Larry's hand gets cut. And obviously we talked about the MPAA rating, but I love just... <laughs> No one can accuse Clyde Barker of being sentimental or not being like, yeah, I'm going to be inflammatory because I love the fact that they fuck on top of her wedding gown. (laughs) It's like, oh, fuck your heteronormative wedding. It shows how vanilla her sex life was, though, because when she lays down on this bed... She lays down like a fucking wooden plank, like mm-hmm. arms at her side, like just flat on the ground. Like, like I'm like, I'm thinking to myself, like, like I was like, when I lay down to fuck on a bed, what do I do? And I'm like, kind of like leaning on my hands, kind of sitting up. I don't just fucking like lay back like I'm a vampire going into a coffin. <laughs> what feels virginal, right? But then it only takes like one cut scene and then back, and she is just full blown into it. Like, yeah, That's all <laughs> she it takes. goes, she goes from like virginal to fully realizing her sexuality yeah. like in a split second <laughs> yeah 
Uh, okay. So yes, Larry does cut his hand. He comes in, we get blood on the floor, and they have to take him to the hospital for stitches. We stick around so that we can watch one of my favorite practical effect sequences in all of horror history. So good. It's again it's so weird. I forget this scene every time and I don't know how. I'll probably never how? do it. <laughs> I know. No. I watching this last night, I, I mean this is like a I want to say 90 seconds. Like this is a long sequence. Mm-hmm. I was just watching this with jaw on the floor. Like, holy shit, this looks so good. It's (laughs) so good. And then you think about, okay, they didn't even have a million pounds budget to do this. Like, I don't know how this sequence alone didn't cost them nearly every penny that they had. Sorry, not a penny in a pound. (laughs) Every shekel. (laughs) That's a small amount in British dollars. Yeah. Um, it just, it looks so good. And watching, my favorite part is when the skeleton lurches forward so that it can connect to the brain. Yes. Oh. Yeah. It's, I mean, it is gross. This is a gross sequence, but. Yes. I, I, and yeah, I mean, honestly, with that budget, I'm just like, I don't, again, <laughs> just looking at Blumhouse, I'm like, y'all, you can do it. <laughs> <laughs> we believe in you, Blumhouse. We believe in you. <laughs> And I think you could you could probably say borrowed heavily by Nightmare on Elm Street for the Dream Master in mm. Freddy's Resurrection scene. What a year later, yeah, because um, they do a lot of that you know reverse filming, like right. reverse melting to kind of you know go from destroyed to Although, to piece back together again. I wonder. Do you think maybe there was? I, mean, I don't know how widely available it would have been, but it had been out for years. But uh, the effects of Evil Dead were any influence on this? Mm. I mean, I'd like to think that people who are working in the biz are keeping track of what their contemporaries are doing, right? Like, I think of American Werewolf in London and The Howling and how they were both sort of, like, keeping an eye on how they were doing the respective werewolf transformations. So mm-hmm. I don't know if, if makeup and FX artists are like, oh, how did you do it? Oh, I like that. I'm going to steal that piece. Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah. Who knows? Okay, so we we get this amazing sequence, and then it's just like, back to reality. Let's have a (laughs) dinner party now that we're moved in. So unfortunately, this is where we're introduced to Steve, who is played by Robert Hines. He and Kirstie are very cute together as they're making fuck eyes at the table. Constantly. (laughs) And Julia is not into this at all. Like, the honeymoon is over already. So she gets up claiming that she's got a headache. And as she proceeds upstairs, she hears sounds in the attic. And this is where she finds the skinless body of Frank, now played by Oliver Smith, who asks her to help him heal. This scene is terrifying. Like, I'm sorry. And and it plays, like, Higgins plays it so well, because I'm going to tell you mm-hmm. right now, I... Be fucking shit in your pants. Like, <laughs> yeah, I am surprised she did not diarrhea all over her feet. Like, this is ridiculous. <laughs> now I'm just picturing the practical effects for that. Oh, my God. It's a whole other budget. <laughs> the thing that I love is how she she almost gets out. Like, there's a lot of people opening doors and then the door getting pushed shut. It's not like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm grappling with the door handle and I can't get it open. It's like people always nearly get out of situations and then the monster locks them back in. And he is so wet. Oh it God. is so wet. Like the close-ups on this, like mm-hmm. it's not even a body because he can't even stand up. It's like a yep. husk of a human that <laughs> is just grayish green and wet all over. I don't even so think he has legs yet. Right? No, like not no. fully formed legs. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. he's like dragging them. Right? 
Well, because the the first time she brings the first victim home, I was like, God, Frank is taking a long time to come out and kill this guy, but because mm-hmm. he can't. He cannot he can't. stand up. No. <laughs> and and that's an interesting piece. So coming back to Mark Richard Adams, he says there's no visible signs of the past gender or strength. Like there's no machismo that we've seen in Frank of either the opening sequence of the flashbacks. And he's actually forced to rely on Julia as a kind of mother, right? And I think that's Mm. part of the reason why people also see her as the wicked stepmother. Like, she is having to take on these more maternal roles when it comes to nurturing Frank, feeding him blood, bringing him men, and so on. But this is also interesting how we do get to watch Frank's gender and identity throughout each stage of his reconstruction so it's like we're we're seeing these new colors and designs and layers as he progresses through the film so we get to watch his sort of like othered body evolve and it is funny watching him kind of play the petulant child you know mm-hmm. he, he he doesn't like being in this dependent position or the submissive position you know he's he's the top and mm-hmm. that's how he likes it. Um, and so that's why he doesn't like what he finds with the Cenobites. And that's why he is very, very cranky. I mean, he's understandably cranky because he's half a person with no skin. Right. But at the same time, he there it's more to it than that. You know, he doesn't like having to depend on Julia because she's another line for him, another line of women who are less than or, you know, who don't really matter. And Mm -hmm. so now he has to depend on her and he doesn't like it. It's the woman that you kick to the curb because she wasn't enough because it's never enough, according to Frank. And all of a sudden now he's got to be like, oh, fuck, that chick that I fucked the one time and then kicked to the curb. I've got to depend on her. Like he just got his car repossessed and she's the only person... Like he knows with a car and he's got to get to work. So it's like now I'm dependent on you. So you drive me like I can't just tell you to fuck off anymore. Yeah, I do. love. So I, I do the whole thing with him saying, oh, don't look at me. Don't look at me. I feel like that's a budgetary thing. So we don't have to see what he's doing. Mm-hmm. The only thing is, I don't fully believe he would care because I feel like this could be playing to more of his like sex games. Oh, see, no, I'm I'm inclined to agree with Brian. I see it as an insecurity because he knows his power when he's at his full capacity, like when he's beautiful and human. But here he's like, oh, look at me. I'm a husk of a man. Like, it's also a bit of an interesting commentary on disability, right? Where it's like he he used to think of himself one way and then something's happened and now he doesn't see himself that way anymore and he doesn't know how to handle it. I guess and you're probably right. The only I just I feel like someone that well versed in bondage and sadomasochism would have a more clear understanding of like the power structure and more operating on both sides of it. See, here's my thing. I don't think he has a very good grasp no. on the dynamics of kink. No, because I don't think he knew what he was getting into when it came to the Cenobites. And I think his idea of, you know, uh, his idea of like really hot subversive mm-hmm. sex wouldn't go beyond like reality kings or or browsers if he was online so like yeah when he actually was introduced to really boundary pushing sex or in this case getting his body ripped apart you know again we're talking in in, in horror movie metaphors right. here he couldn't handle it so i don't think he's capable of sex play or sex games like whatever he's coming back from he's just he's not up to that challenge at all but at the same time, I don't think anyone who opens this puzzle box fully understands what they are getting into. <laughs> oh, sure. Sure, yeah, sure. It, I mean, that's it, half the fun. 
And like I said, the the idea that I've, you know, I like to think that some people opened it and got exactly what they wanted, that's fully headcanon. I don't know that there's anything within the text that suggests that there's anybody who likes what they get when they open this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. I hate Frank. I just hate him so much. Like, I, I hate him in the movie. I hate him in the book. He is just that guy who likes to wave his dick around and uh-huh. likes to think he's this experienced, you know, explorer of sexual experience. And he's just a he's a predator like he's there's nothing interesting about the kind of sex he wants to have he, he cares about no one but himself and again mm-hmm. i think that's why that's why that's what makes julia such a more interesting character is because there are parts of where you can be like i get why you're doing this mm-hmm. but with frank we don't have that insight no honestly i think of amy from brooklyn 99 and it's like frank yeah basic like <laughs> i love that you just made that connection <laughs> Well, when you think of the pictures that Julia finds that she covets, right, you know, they're supposed to be daring and risque and stuff. And you look at it and you're like, A, is it just because he's having sex with a woman of color in a couple of them? Because, ew. But also, like, this is the lightest. Like, this is vanilla BDSM. So I don't know if this is a 1987 censorship thing. Like, we don't want to push the envelope too much. But I always read it as, no, Frank. Yeah, basic. His idea of kink is whipping out a switchblade for a couple of seconds and right. maybe some light hair pulling. Right. <laughs> yes. Hmm. And maybe spanking in a deleted scene. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So she's like, okay, can I get out of this room? So she leaves and we get this interesting threatening moment. And I love the way this is shot where Julia and Kirsty have like just a, a very tense encounter because Kirsty wants to go upstairs and Julia's like, no, I'm not letting you. And this is where you start to see the frostiness really creeping into Julia. Which you love to see. Okay, so we follow Christy home for a little bit. She and Steve, and she notices that the derelict, who is played by Frank Baker, is eyeing her. That's kind of a simmering B plot. We'll come back to it later. Yeah. And that night, we get both Julia and Frank reflecting on her promise to do anything for him. And she ultimately decides to help him out. I would have been satisfied with just, she loves him so much or whatever the fuck but mm-hmm. that we we cut back yeah. to that line of her saying i'll do anything for you and i'm like bitch you could have made an exception this one time <laughs> <laughs> yeah when you said that you probably didn't imagine you'd be delivering john does to him <laughs> i do love also that this scene immediately transitions over to Kirsty's nightmare Uh, This is one of the only dream sequences that we get in a fantastical film, but I think that the placement of it is important. You could easily look at this scene and say like, "Eh, it's some interesting visual imagery, but what's the point of it? And I kind of think of it in the same way, Brian, that you mentioned Julia almost manifests Frank back from the grave. This feels like the beginning of Kirstie's telepathic connection to Frank. And I always look at them as mirrors in this movie. So mm. Frank has gotten Julia onto his side. The evil plans are in the works. And Kirstie immediately feels, oh, my father is in danger. And that's why she makes the phone call to him in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. There's nothing to support any of that in the text that's just how i look at it (laughs) there's also nothing to contradict it there we go yes we're counting it all right so the next day julia dons a power bitch outfit and she heads to the (laughs) bar the shoulder pads on this thing so good i mean it is the 80s but she looks fucking amazing 
And is this the one where she's got the star earrings on too? I know at some point there's some like really top notch, just like in your face star shaped earrings that are just mm-hmm. exquisite. I mean, look, listeners, y'all know I don't pay attention to costumes that much. So for me to even make a note of the shoulder pads, that's how stand out <laughs> <Yeah>. they are. <laughs> they are striking. Her outfits from the rest of the film on are just so impressive. But also you could argue that they are sort of towing the line between like feminine and masculine like there's a hardness to her look even like her sort of david bowie androgynous haircut and a lot of I pants mean, it's suits. 80s but it's also very apropos that she is sort of straddling the gender line yeah i was gonna say she doesn't get naked in this film but she we do get a flash of her boob during that sex scene which i did forget to point out if you pause it just right oh my god you can see frank's penis when he gets up from that bed in that what mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah no it's it's not like a like because you see him on the bed naked with his legs crossed but then he stands up and once right. he stands up and starts walking out of frame mm-hmm. you can see his dick I mean, I never really even saw it as you need to pause it. Like, I'm pretty sure there's just a quick flash of he hangs down a little bit. Yeah. Uh, Tatum, Mm -hmm. just get in the car. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so she brings this man who is played by Anthony Allen back to the house. She hits him in the face three times and then she leaves Frank to do his dirty work. The frame of this. I love the shots of her whenever like it's. It's when she first picks up the hammer and like mm-hmm. gets ready to strike it. It looks like a publicity still almost where it's just her with this ray of light shining on her yeah. as she just looks ready to kill. It is mm-hmm. such a good shot and she looks fantastic. It's his first movie. He doesn't know what he's doing. Like every shot of this movie to me is gorgeous. Like I would frame stills from this movie by the dozens. Actually, Joe, it's a bankruptcy of imagination. Oh, I'm both spot on ebert impressions by the way my god well now we're going to hell (laughs) no so she she basically leaves so that she can clean herself up this is when we get the shot that you were talking about brian that's so great and then she goes back in to check on the progress and frank is like hey look at this i can start to feel things and all this shit and you're just like oh my god frank i love how it's all about you all the time yeah like it's literally like again like the pinnacle of sexual experience for him is like i want to touch your boob Mm -hmm. like that's that's what he's bringing to the table my god i'm gonna tell you now too i don't know if y'all do this but i cringe every time because i'm just like he is so gooey yeah like (laughs) he's literally dripping with goo like it's not just oh he's he's like a sheen no he's dripping with this stuff (laughs) but at that point that's the only interesting thing about him at that point (laughs) His his wet status is the only interesting thing about him. My goo! Not my goo! I do love to, yeah, like she leaves this room so that she can go and clean herself up. Admittedly not super, super well, but she's probably also in a little bit of shock because she's just helped to commit her first murder. The first thing he wants to do is grab her wrist and hurt her. And then she's like, well, I guess I'll stick your finger in my mouth. Yeah. (laughs) but then also he's like oh can you get rid of this corpse now that larry's back because uh we need to move it into a different room like the labor dude like i thought you were gonna like literally just absorb this i gotta clean this shit up are you Mm -hmm. serious (laughs) yeah again she's like she's got a kid now like Mm -hmm. she's got to feed him she's got to clean up after him exactly uh, and then he grabs her by the tit like this is not 
It's not good. <laughs> this is not a good situation. So I'm going to turn back to Mark Richard Adams at this point, because in case people haven't been paying attention, we will see multiple people get murdered by Frank in this film. They are all men. And sure, it's because Julia can attract men and bring them back to the house. Uh, but uh, okay, hmm. okay, okay. So the fact that Frank and Julia's primary victims are male has a certain queer connotation. His victims consist entirely of men, including his own brother, in one of two potential acts of incest within the film, suggesting a repressed queer desire on Frank's part. He does love to stick his fingers into men. Okay, because like it sounded like you said that the incest would hint at repressed queer desire so are we linking incest i guess if we're saying incest is like literally queer but not queer i think in this case just because his brother is a man but yeah mark richard adams i think is suggesting more in the pantheon of victims like they're all men and frank doesn't seem to have an issue sticking Got his it. fingers in sucking the juices out of them obviously he does it to <laughs> julia at the end of the film as well so he's a bit of an equal opportunist but um mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is it, we're positioning Frank on a deviant sexuality yeah. spectrum because he's not afraid to be incestual and he's not afraid to go after men. God, I mean, it's, it's that conflation of, of incest with queerness. That's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's a bit of a weird connection for me, but, but pulling it back a bit, I get it. I can't believe I've never thought about this. <laughs> he's sticking <laughs> his fingers in men and sucking their juices, and I never thought about the queer reading. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And it, it does give that gives another layer to when he says, "Don't look at me" when he's doing right. that. Yeah, Ooh, don't look yeah. at my shame. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh my god, we do love some queer shame on this podcast. Uh, that comes up a lot. Yeah. Important to note too, like there's a lot of linkages. Like characters are often sort of shadow or mirror reflections of one another. So I suggested that I think Frank and Kirsty are. Obviously, the brothers are as well. So one of the most infamous lines that Frank is always delivering is come to daddy. And when Larry arrives home and he finds Julia in while she's pretending to be sick so that she can get him to go away. He says, you want anything, little girl? And you're just like, Gross. oh, so both brothers are actually sort of like gentle misogynists. But, uh, but then we go from all this to mm-hmm. this to a, a glimpse into Kirsty's work life right? at the pet store with this old biddy who is <laughs> really upset about something involving her bird but we will never know what that is i want to speak to your manager you have to wait <laughs> i'm sorry there's a man eating live crickets over to the side i think your bird can wait and actually i just i just would have pointed him out and then like i'm guessing the woman leaves if you right, point right? out the man right, eating crickets uh-huh <laughs> I mean, she's she's British. She's probably properly scandalized when she sees what's going on over there. She's like, mm, I'll just come back. So, yes, we get a second murder. And then this is when Julia demands exposition. Oh, sorry. When she demands an explanation about what happened. <laughs> <with Frank. laughs> Little 40s slip there. And we do get uh, another flashback to Frank being... Basically, he's hung upside down, similar to what we see in Hostel Part 2. And he's being tortured, but... Again, these scenes are very brief, and I think it's just to really illuminate, you know, there is there is that tension between what he was looking for and what they're delivering unto him, and it, I don't know, I, I can understand why people would look at this and say, oh, well, he's being tortured, hence torture porn, but 
I just think that that is simplifying it. I mean, so for me, I do think they are, quote unquote, just torturing him. But again, (laughs) there is no distinction between pleasure and pain. They are one and the same. Right. It just so happens that their version of pleasure is our version of pain. Oh, okay. I like it. And I still think there's a level of eroticism to the way they're doing it you know he's upside down he's mm-hmm. got he's not he's got no shirt on he's probably naked but you know you yeah. only see him from the the torso down uh or up i guess in this case and he's you know he's moaning it's it's not orgasmically by any means but right. yeah there, there definitely is still some i think erotic undertones to what you're seeing perhaps a little bit muted by the fact that like i keep thinking about how poor sean chapman the, the guy who plays frank talked about how he got like very nauseous in that scene uh, because he's just got spinning. like fake blood dumping into his mouth while he's just repeatedly spinning around and as someone who gets <laughs> like motion sick pretty bad that like is like oh man i feel you buddy that that must not have been pleasant but it's true right i mean if you had the sound up but you weren't watching the screen you could mistake this for s and m porn because it's 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 moaning and the sounds of like chains and stuff you're like okay there's a bit of dungeon action going on cool cool <laughs> uh okay so we cut to a stormy night and we've got larry and julia watching the big fight all of a sudden she doesn't seem so bothered by all the blood and violence on screen frank on the other hand is acting like a fucking child walking back <laughs> and forth pounding on the walls and this naturally attracts larry's attention so julia has to use her feminine wiles to distract him don't go up to the attic uh uh uh, uh, my pussy's open (laughs) basically i probably haven't had sex with you in quite some time how about we go for some standard vanilla on the bed which larry's really dumb because this should be a red flag that's like okay something's in that attic (laughs) yeah like what's up i love how this scene is like emblematic of how both cotton boys are just fucking idiots you know you've got frank who like dude you have no skin. You maybe need to lie low for a little bit. Right. But instead, like you said, he's throwing a temper tantrum in the attic where clearly, you know, someone's going to hear him. And then, yeah, all it takes is a little peek under the skirt for old Larry to be like, well, let's forget what I clearly heard coming from the attic and mm-hmm. we'll just, you know, divert to the bedroom. But if, okay, if Larry's stupidity at like buying into Julia's bullshit is not enough, mm-hmm. we have about 30 seconds of her going, no. No, I can't. And he is still going to town, like, uh, motorboating her titties. Like, I don't... (laughs) No, he's terrible. And I love, too, like, Frank is just as abhorrent here. I I appreciate that we're meant to be scared that he is going to kill Larry or maybe her or something like that. And I'm just there with you, Brian, thinking, you don't have any skin on. This is just an ego trip for you. Like, he... He just wants to get off on the fact that he can creep out of the shadows, skin a rat, and maybe get her upset. Ooh, I do think, too, like, with the, with these skinless people, um, it looks worse. And by, I mean, by worse, I mean in a good way. Mm-hmm. When they're wearing clothes. Oh, and it's seeping oh, yeah. through. Yes. yes. That contrast. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there is a shot of Claire Higgins sans skin spoilers for the second film where she puts on an all-white suit that gets bloody and it is Mm -hmm. one of my favorite scenes in all of horror wild oh it's so good okay 
So, um, obviously, Larry is perturbed by this behavior, so the next day at lunch, he asks Kirsty if she can swing by the house sometime. Just check on my wife, because you two have such a great relationship. There is humor in- uh, sorry, there, uh, this isn't a funny movie, but Barker has many moments of humor. Mm-hmm. It, it, it is in this, where he's like, who knows, maybe all she needs is somebody to talk to, and then we cut to Frank talking to Julia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I even like the the little the the moment watching the the boxing match. Like, yeah, it's it's right. kind of a little bit hokey, but I don't know. I, I like the fact that knowing everything that Julia has just gone through in terms of just like mutilating these men with hammers, mm-hmm. she's like, eh, I don't, eh, boxing's not a big deal anymore. I love it. I mean, it's part of her arc, right? But it's subtle. It's not hit you over the head with a fucking hammer. Obvious. It's just like, if you're paying attention, oh, look, certain things aren't bothering her anymore. And also, she's drinking drinks like a badass bitch because she's just killing people all the time now. Which is basically where we're up to. So, Frank is now at the point where he's like, I would like to consider killing my brother. So, Julia picks up victim number three that we see. And, of course, this is exactly when Kirsty is arriving at the house to check on her. So, she follows them inside don't know why Kirsty. you've seen enough damning evidence you could just leave at this point i'm sorry the damning evidence is just hey dad your wife is bringing a man into the house exactly not hey dad your wife is bringing men home so that she can feed them to your skinless brother well i will say that i am surprised oh that, that, that we get this much happening in this scene like the movie mm-hmm. really takes a hard pivot after this because this is also when the movie becomes more of Kirsty's film and not yeah. julia's yeah this is the transition point and mm-hmm. i do think it's such a, an interesting careful balance right because we have to fear for Kirsty, who is a character we don't really know all that well because we haven't spent right. that much time with her And also, we're seeing Frank and Julia from a different perspective. It's not Julia's story anymore. It's now Kirstie's. And Julia and Frank look like fucking monsters now. So Kirstie ends up basically narrowly escaping because she manages to get her hands on the puzzle box. She gets to hear the come to daddy line because, of course, that will be her tip off later. And she throws the box out the window, and that is enough of a distraction that she can escape past Frank and Julia, and then she, yeah, immediately passes out from shock on the sidewalk. But again, another bit of humor, um, she's walking down the street, What? who does she walk by but two nuns who are just <laughs> yeah. looking at her mm-hmm. <laughs> like she is crazy. <laughs> so we know, having talked about less so in Lords of Illusion, but definitely in Nightbreed, Parker's not super fond of religion, so I do see this as a bit of a condemnation like, yeah, you could pass nuns on the street after what you've encountered and they won't be able to help you. Yeah. (laughs) So she wakes up in the hospital. She has no idea how she's gotten there. She is mansplained by a doctor who does not believe that she has experienced anything. And then she makes the fatal mistake. Touching that box. I I will tell I don't understand how this box works. I don't know what the puzzle is because you just pull it in half, it looks like, and you just put it back together the same way almost. But I can see how switching the film to focus on Kirstie would be maybe underwhelming to some, mm-hmm. especially because, as you said, Joe, we haven't spent much time with her. But I will tell you that Kirstie is one of the most resourceful final girls I've ever yep. seen, mm-hmm. and she is smart. And so, if anything, it makes me wish I had more of her before this, but I'm fine with this switch because Kirstie is such a strong character for me at this from this point moving forward. This also represents an interesting area where it really kind of is, I think, muddying the waters of 
consent. Okay. Because you, this is where you're introduced to the idea that the box wants you to open it mm-hmm. and it is going to give you a gentle pull in that direction, you know, right. but I think there's also something about something to be said about the fact that it's not pulling at things that aren't there. Right. You know, so it's, it's reaching out to those parts of yourself that maybe you keep tucked in a very deep, dark corner mm-hmm. and it's letting those things start to come out, you know, and you see that with kind of that, you know, she's she's kind of got that almost dumb glazed over smile when she's looking at the box. Like yes. there's there's something that is it's releasing some kind of endorphins or mm-hmm. something. And I think it's addressed, you know, obviously I don't want to get too far down that rabbit hole, but in part two, they they address it a little bit more succinctly where, you know, they say it's not hands that opens us or that that call to us, it's desire. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I think you see that unspoken here. Uh-huh. The box is definitely an object of seduction. I mean we haven't really talked about the look of it. I think the props to the prop master because it is such a striking and memorable object, right? Like it's basically a deadly Rubik's cube that you do not want to fuck with, but there's something so intriguing and powerful about it that you can understand why you would gravitate to it. But this is why I start to think that Kirsty is actually akin to Frank because she undergoes yeah. the same journey as him she, like Julia, has her own Larry in boring-ass Steve. And yeah. guess what? Like, we, we see them, you know, not quite in bed. Like, she's in bed and he's on the floor. Clearly, their relationship is not particularly sexual, or maybe it just hasn't matured to that point yet. But you get this impression that she is interested in something more than this right Mm -hmm. and that's why she opens the box and you're right chase this is also our big introduction to her right this is another scene where i think people could look at it and say well why did we need this scene with the engineer in the hallway is it that valuable sure it comes back at the end of the film but i think that this is a hundred percent to show kirstie's resourcefulness because she can outrun this monster yeah and it's a great sequence it's very exciting and fun And then she immediately has to pivot and use her brain to broker a deal when the Cenobites arrive. I will say I wrote in my notes, I was like, well, she got the good opening, I guess, because no hooks for her. (laughs) It's a door. (laughs) And a giant penis monster chasing after her. Right. I mean, this is that situation where, you know, to borrow a phrase from Trace, like the fact that she didn't diarrhea herself all over the floor. (laughs) Oh, the subtitle of the episode. There it is. Diarrhea in her feet, in her shoes. (laughs) But it, it, it's 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 funny the way they find a way around that in terms of like yeah she doesn't get the hooks but I think it's also telling about how much stronger mm-hmm. uh, that both Julia and Kirsty are than Frank. Frank right. opens that box and he's fucking done yep. immediately. Kirsty opens it and she manages to you know figure out a way to survive it. Now right. again, she didn't get the hooks right off the bat, but I mean. It, it, it's not to say that uh, a giant, big, toothy, you know, demon penis monster, that's also equally threatening. Right. You know, so the fact that that didn't get her, I think, is telling. Well, and, and like, honestly, like because the chatterer comes up to her and shoves his fingers in her mouth. Yeah, it's an oral rape for sure. But yeah, I mean, again, like watching the cogs turn in her head as she tries to figure a way out of this. Because again, mm-hmm. she's on the ticking clock. They are literally about to take her to their dimension to go fucking torture the hell out of her, you know, do whatever they want. And also, she doesn't know what the fuck is going on. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Like, all she knows is that Frank is back. He looks the way he does, and mm-hmm. he wants that box. She right. puts all this together during this scene, and that immediately i'm like ooh, 
good for you, girl. You're mm-hmm. doing a real good job. <laughs> yeah, I would be. My my brain synapses would just like. Oh, be, yeah, nothing, nothing. You know, they they talk about uh, fight, flight, or freeze. I would be freezing and Pooping. dead. Yeah, I would not. I would not survive that situation. Yeah, uh, it's and it's really. I mean, again, the the more I'm getting into cosmic horror, I'm like, oh my god, the fear of like, what? Where are they taking me? What is going to happen? And it's for eternity. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is horrifying like this is a terrifying position to be in and i'm so glad she gets out of it yeah trace like once again the evolution of this movie i never considered this as cosmic horror Mm -hmm. and now i love considering this as cosmic horror right that's amazing (laughs) i love it so we we haven't really talked about the fact that we're also getting to see the cenobites like this is also their big sort of coming out moment because we previously only glimpsed them either not saying any dialogue or just sort of operating for a couple of seconds at a time i want to talk a little bit about just how good they look even in better lighting i was thinking the exact same thing the costumes are iconic the makeup job is fantastic even the way that barker shoots the transition so we see the tiling on the hospital wall switch to black so that we can pump steam out between Mm -hmm. and it is so It's just so fucking visually captivating, this whole sequence. And we're having to watch Kirstie do everything on the fly. It's so good. The way he lingers on the Cenobite's faces in this well-lit shot, he's mm-hmm. like, I dare you to find the seams on this. Right? Like, I dare you to find the cracks in the facade. Like, you are not going to have to suspend disbelief. You are going to believe that Cenobites are a real thing. I promise you. And then, of course, we got Doug Bradley just biting into this dialogue like it ends with this potion on him where he's like we will tear your soul apart which is the tagline for the film and i always forget too because the first half of that line is delivered by the female cinema because she Mm -hmm. says but if you cheat us Uh, i love her too grace kirby is so good in this i always wish the female cinebite a had a fucking name and b got Mm -hmm. more to do well, also because the wound on her neck is very vaginal, right? Yes, we did talk mm-hmm. about this a little bit with Angelique when we talked about the fourth one, because it's like yes. variations of this. Yeah, I mean, very female coded, but also I would argue a lot of sort of androgynous kind of like gender fluidity in the garb, like because Pinhead also has like a kind of vaginal stomach wound in his uh, exposed stomach area. I mean, we, we're all on the same page that this is a gender fluid mm-hmm. pansexual polycule. Yes. yes. Right. Okay. Any holes a goal. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Especially if you're a Cenobite, you're like everything. Oh, there isn't a hole there? Let me make one. We'll make one. one. Fuck it. Yeah. <laughs> yes, they will make it and fuck it. Okay, so Kirsty has escaped, at least from Julia and Frank's perspective. They have no idea where she's gone. So, of course, they worry that they're going to get discovered. And this is when Frank says, okay, we need to kill Larry. So we see that it, this is interesting. We don't see this murder. It's off screen. But we know it happens. We 100% know what's going on. And then immediately thereafter, they consummate their relationship for the first time since he's back. And so this is, again, she's fucking what looks like her husband, mm-hmm. but for the, like with steamy, passionate sex for the first time ever. Right. But let's not forget. Okay, so I'm bringing back Mark 
Richard Adams. So thinking about Frank in this perspective, he restores himself by stealing and wearing his brother's skin, and then he finally gets to have sex with Julia. And this feels like this desperate bid to reaffirm his heterosexuality, right? Like, okay, well, I'm back to normal, baby, so I can get back to fucking women. And he's also still doing weird shit, right? Because he's going to try to do an incestuous rape of Kirsty. So his sexuality is almost destabilized, right? Like he's desperately trying to prove his manhood, but also he's refusing to just go off with Julia. It's also interesting that now he's become this amalgam of Frank and Larry, you know, so they've kind of come together. So it's, I don't know, she can kind of almost see it as the best of both worlds. Although I, I don't know if it was ever like necessarily a physical attraction that she had to Larry. You know, it was more his stability, but I don't know, maybe there's something for her there to be able to see, like, oh, I get kind of both Larry and Frank now. I mean, I am a little confused as to how she doesn't pull his skin off during the fucking, because sure. it's not that tight. And also, he has, like, a clear line of mm-hmm. where the skin meets the skin. I love it. Like, <laughs> he looks like the boy from Little Monsters. Like, the, the guy at the end who's, like, he's dressed up, he's a little boy, but he's clearly, like, it's a little boy's face, like, pasted onto mm-hmm. a monster behind it. Mm-hmm. Like, it, same vibe from this, where, yeah, it's like, this is not a very... Uh, foolproof (laughs) disguise skin suit that you're wearing also this is a mission impossible so we don't have fucking voice things that can change your voice but yet here we are (laughs) they also play pretty fast and loose with like the rules of regeneration in this series because okay he it takes him forever the whole movie (laughs) takes him forever he winds up getting like when he sucks the last bit out of you know to to become whole with larry he looks like larry but in the next movie when julia is you know picking up a bunch of randos and and getting their skin she gets her old skin Uh, see though i actually always read this as he literally flays larry and wears his skin like a suit not that he he becomes like larry after as his final transformation because again that line that blood red line across his head that's like okay he's wearing his skin as a suit mm-hmm. he's not actually like he didn't grow this skin in his face well then if that's what he did he did a pretty fucking good job there's some seams but the fact yes. that he took <laughs> yeah. an entire his entire his brother's entire skin and like you know aside from like some some blood seams along the hairline like mm-hmm. he did a pretty good job well that's why we couldn't watch that scene because it would have taken like 12 hours to, to get over <laughs> well and here's the even more disturbing thing the reason we don't see it is because larry would have still been alive because if frank had have stuck his fingers in the skin would have been all withered like pruny right because we see yeah. what happens to julia and all these other men so he Either, well, I guess he could have killed Larry and then taken yeah, I guess skin Julia, off. Julia could have hammered him. But yeah, no, I, I read it the same way because that's why we always get these repeated images of Frank with the pocket knife. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Oh my God, though. Wouldn't you want like a butcher knife? I know. Shit? Jesus. <laughs> it, it would have taken 12 hours for sure. But, but leave it to Frank. <laughs> he would have used the switchblade just because he's that kind of douchebag. Oh, yeah. Oh, 100%. Yeah. He's like, I don't have to overcompensate for anything. I have all the equipment I need. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I definitely don't have a limp dick or anything for sure. I mean, he definitely does not based on what we've seen in this film. <laughs> Well, back in the day. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Although Julia does look pretty satisfied when Kirsty shows up. <laughs> so, speaking of, Kirsty returns to the house because she thinks she needs to get her dad. And, of course, then she's caught in this, like, 
interesting three-way between Julia, Frank posing as Larry, and then the Cenobites who have also returned. We also get this weird, because again, we have to go back to Steve as he goes to find Kirsty at the hospital. And don't care. We get the second <laughs> instance, though, of this nurse who just walks out on people as their mid-sentence. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know why it's here. It's just funny to me. I'm just like, okay, she walks out on Kirsty, and she walks out on Steve mid-sentence. <laughs> And then she walks into the Exorcist 3. Oh, yes. God. <laughs> <laughs> and and then out of that movie. <laughs> yeah. uh, that nurse had a day. So Frank is legitimately terrible at roleplay. Clearly not one of his better sex games because he gives himself away almost immediately. And uh, I mean, he doesn't even care, right? He doesn't keep up the pretense at all. I guess why would you bother? Because he feels like... Oh, he he's too cocky. Yeah, it goes back to the arrogance of, like, I can't lose. And it's like, yeah. dude, mm-hmm. you should know from, like, very recent experience that you totally can <laughs> fucking lose. <laughs> and badly. Like, you should not be this confident in your ability to navigate these situations. Yeah. You learn nothing from his time in no. the cinematic dimension. No. And that that's what makes Frank such a, like, a frustrating but also wholly believable and almost relatable character. So just, mm-hmm. like, dude got flayed and then sent to a hell dimension, potentially, comes back and is still as cocky and confident as ever. Like, wow, it's impressive. He learned nothing. And, of course, it seems like Julia didn't really learn much either because she put her faith in the wrong man and he stabs her and kills her. And then in the ultimate betrayal, he can't just leave her alone. He also has to suck her dry. This always rubs me. I, I, I get that it does kind of go in line with Frank's character, mm-hmm. but... It always kind of like kills me that this is the because don't you want the end of this to be between Kirsty and Julia? Like, don't you wish Frank had been the one to get offed first? I mean, I would if we didn't have the sequel, but I feel like that's what makes it so satisfying. And especially like for folks who haven't seen number two, Frank does come back in the sequel and the way that he is handled is just chef's kiss perfect the way that julia does not give a fuck about him which is also interesting when you consider you know you talk about joe how you consider part two like a companion piece Mm -hmm. as opposed to just a sequel and it's does this movie if there's no sequel you lose a lot of that agency that 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 we have given to julia you know because of where you know things go in the sequel but if this if this was just how things ended for the julia cotton saga yeah that's anticlimactic Mm -hmm. and a missed opportunity and even punitive right like i love claire higgins delivery of the line not me not me like it Mm -hmm. it almost breaks my heart and that's how i realize how much i fucking love the character and not just because she's bad and she looks fabulous doing it but because she is a a whole person and this is the ultimate act of betrayal to me like this is the this is the moment of the film that hurts the most to me yeah so now we're down to some stocky cat and mouse shit, because even though Frank said he didn't want to do that, he proceeds to stalk Kirsty from room to room. So this is a slasher. Well, but the funny thing is, is that you think, I mean, obviously she's in danger. She's finding maggot-ridden corpses in the room where Julia stashed them. But this is also her figuring her shit out because she knows that she needs to get him to self-identify so that the Cenobites will appear. Because she's wired. Mm-hmm. Which is what she finally gets him to do because he does the fucking come to daddy and she's like, you're Frank. And he's like, yeah, I'm fucking Frank because he's got the bravado <laughs> like an idiot. 
And that's <laughs> when they show up. And I love, too, that they are playful enough that they will let him almost get to her with the knife before they sink that first hook into his hand. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> Just like, oh, oh, you thought you were going to get? No, we're going to pull you Not back. Not so fast, Frank. <laughs> We haven't given Andrew Robinson very much credit, but he fully transforms into Frank in the back half of this film. Mm -hmm. And it is a night and day difference in terms of his performance. It's so good. No, I know I made a joke about like his voice. It should not be his voice, Mm -hmm. but I'm glad it is because I... This performance would be diminished if we had the the, the Frank right. actor dubbing over this. Yeah, and the way the way like his lip snarls when he just gives that "come to daddy," mm. like it's ew, it's so creepy. It's it so well delivered. It's so good. Also, he he came up with the Jesus wept line because originally it was "fuck you," oh, which is so iconic, right? Jesus mm-hmm. wept is such a classic line. And then he just blows up. (laughs) I mean, you talked about how wet and gooey this film is. He is still not fully whole. Like we we talked about Kirsty earlier before she escaped from the house the first time. She does like fully stick her hand into his guts. Gross. So good. Yeah. And the chunk she takes out of his cheek, too, is just. Oh, yeah. Oh, and it's just like flapping on his face for Uh the entire like 10 minutes he's left on screen. Uh So good. So Frank has been dispatched, but if you thought the Cenobites were going to let Kirsty go, the female Cenobite already said no one gets away from us. So we now have to dispatch each of them individually with their own unique puzzle. Okay, Kirsty is a smart final girl. She's really resourceful. Mm-hmm. I don't buy for one fucking second she would have been able to figure all this out to get rid of these <laughs> Cenobites one at a time. <laughs> I think the the only thing I can think is if if you want to give some kind of a justification for that, like if the box has that ability to compel you mm-hmm. to kind of draw out your desires to solve it, like maybe it kind of has that intuitive like connection to if your desire is like, oh, shit, I don't want this. Right. Uh, and you're not a stupid asshole like Frank, then the box will kind of give you that like that that shortcut to. Mm-hmm. Kind of like just maybe in the back of your mind, let you know, like, hey, you brought them here by opening it. See what happens if you close it. <laughs> I just have this mental image of Kirsty sitting at like the, like the table at the beginning with Frank and the dealer with Pinhead. And she's like, OK, so how do you guys? OK, well, you just take the box and you just rub your little finger on the circle right here. Mm-hmm. And this is going to pop out, Kirsty. <laughs> <laughs> it's like when, when you like are learning a very like complicated board game with with your friends and you're right. all trying to figure out at the same time that but it's with pinhead but also really good for honest reactions so I, I i do hate the fact that pinhead is not the final one she has to deal with she's the second one she gets rid of right but he pops up behind her and he's like we have such sights to show you and she just looks at him hesitates and goes shit <laughs> <laughs> kersey's reactions are a million percent genuine throughout yes. all of this yeah. she looks frantic as fuck and you're just like you got this girl. I believe in you. You're yeah. smart. You could do it. Still capable though. You know, again, mm-hmm. not diarying herself. Like she's figuring it out. Right. And then also, you know, gives you that opportunity for some of the only non makeup visual effects, you know, where you get to see the blue lightning or whatever you want to call mm-hmm. it come out and surround them, which uh, if I remember correctly, was actually done like Barker and, and like his editor or something like got drunk, spent a weekend and hand drew 
on the cells to do all of that. Oh, that was probably Tony Randall, the guy that directed two and like came in and like helped them like reshoot all the stuff. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. Yeah. But yeah, apparently they just knocked that like they got like shit face drunk and just like knocked that out in <laughs> a hotel room. Awesome. Well, also, hey, I like all of this, but what do y'all think of her? I'm going to call it a fist fight mm-hmm. with the engineer. Oh, I fucking love it. Really? <laughs> Steve shows up. He is so useless. He almost dies. She has to save him. And then, yeah, he doesn't listen to her. So we open the door. There's the engineer. And then we get this fucking just slapdash, like grabbing for the puzzle box. But not but not before Steve gets punched in the face by the engineer and then elbowed to the side by Kirsty. Like Kirsty, yeah. I think this verges a little bit too far into silliness for me. I mean, it, it is a little silly. Yeah. I think it's entertaining, but I wrote him out. I was like, this is really dumb. <laughs> and I think it if it was just Kirsty, it wouldn't work that well for me. But right. the fact that there, it's that juxtaposition of like, again, seeing Steve, who is clearly out of his element mm-hmm. in whatever room he's in, he's out of his element. And and seeing that contrasted against Kirsty, who has, like, literally been through hell. Mm-hmm. Um, and just the fact that it's like, dude, get out of my way. Yes. I got this. Like, I think it's that final cherry on top of a movie where it's like inconsequential men, please get the fuck out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> I have seen this scene in particular get referenced uh, often in collaboration with people saying that this is a slasher film. So it's like, well, this is oh when God. she ascends to become a true final girl and she doesn't need men and this kind of stuff. And I'm like, yeah, but you can also just have a female protagonist who is strong and independent. Like, she's not grabbing a phallic weapon and stabbing right. the shit out of this thing. In like, fact, she's grabbing a box. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, Brian. Oh, I man. love it. That's good. That's really good. Perfection, Ryan. <laughs> I'm just going to go now because no, I'm never going to top, top that. that. Yeah, that yeah. was perfect. Even it was Frank perfect community time. <laughs> oh, my God. The puns. Uh, <clears throat> but, yeah. So... They escape. They escape. The house basically blows up slash goes up in flames. And then Kirsty's like, cool, I'm done with this shit. She tries to burn the box. And this is when, hey, remember that derelict character? Yeah, he's back. He grabs the box. He melts after catching fire, which also looks great. And then turns into a giant winged bone monster thing, which (laughs) doesn't look super great. A giant winged bone monster. This was a late addition, by the way. Clive Barker just wanted something really threatening to end the movie on. Mm -hmm. um, So he came up with this. Sure. I mean, this shows up in the comics a lot, which Brian and I also talk about on that limited miniseries. We have an entire episode dedicated to the comics. And this ends up becoming part of the visual iconography of a lot of the Hellraiser stories. But here you're kind of like, okay, this is interesting. It's a little undercooked. Brian, I know you're here with us on this episode, but Joe, for a split second, every time you say me and Brian, I was like, your husband? Like, he watches this shit? (laughs) (laughs) No, my Brian doesn't understand anything about these movies. He's like, why are you watching this for the millionth time? (laughs) (laughs) He's like, I love how much you love it. I don't understand the appeal. I'm like, but Julia Khan, Has he watched it in its entirety? Uh, No, he, he like walks through and that's about as much as he wants oh my god you're such a steve leave me alone honey we're just gonna watch one movie but you put on one and two because they really are two parts of a whole this is true. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just double feature them. <laughs> just find a way to edit out the end credits of part one and the beginning credits of part yeah, two right <laughs> it just continues oh my god give me the super cut it's just the fan <laughs> cut yeah 
Uh, okay, and basically the monster deposits the box presumably back in Morocco so that we can start all over again. And that is the end of Hellraiser. Yay! Brian, give us your final thoughts. Masterpiece, no notes, highest rating I can give it. It's just, it's my favorite movie of all time, you know, and it's, again, just talking about this with you has proved that Every time I revisit this, either through watching it or talking about it with somebody else, there's something else for me to find that I will that will make me enjoy this movie more. And today I get to walk away with Hellraiser as cosmic horror mm-hmm. before they ever go to space. So <laughs> thank you for that, Trace. I appreciate it. But yeah, you are welcome. Absolutely adore this movie. I, I, I'm I'm pretty vocal about how I, how much I adore the second film in this franchise, and it's always been my favorite. But I will say that this is the the first time I've watched Hellraiser where I have come close to being like, maybe it is better than the second one. Mm-hmm. I really like this. I, I, I can't, I, every time I've watched it, I found something more about it. I've noticed something different that I'm like, oh, I do like that a lot. Um, I, this is a masterclass in horror, and this is the most I've ever liked this film on a watch. Uh, I, I do love it as well. It, it, it admittedly is not one I care to watch a lot because I don't find it particularly... Um, enjoyable yeah like it's not gonna get your blood pumping or anything yeah well maybe that's why i like the second one because the second one's very much i mean again we have the status quo like kirsty knows what's going on and it's definitely more bombastic it's mm-hmm. not an action movie but it's more action oriented so that to me is a more fun watch than this one you wouldn't call this like comfort food horror. right and i would call the second one that okay which i can kind of see it, it, there's there's something a little bit more I don't know, something similar to how, like, the difference between Alien and Aliens. Like, yeah, it, yeah it, I, I, I think, too, for me, I mean, I, 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 that's why I think Scream 2 is better than, than Scream 1. Or, I'm sorry, why I prefer Scream 2 to Scream 1, not why it's better. I just like starting a movie where the status quo is already done. The, 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 our lead character from the first movie already knows the whole gist. We don't have to go through all this setup. So I think for a first-time viewing, it works for me. But for a second-time viewing, I'm like, oh, I, I want to I wanna move past all this, like, right. learning, figuring things out type stuff. Yeah, You're not a big origin story guy no no hate it fucking hate. i mean sorry i don't like it but like you know um but joe yes you close this out <laughs> uh yeah very similar reactions to brian it's my horror origin it's also my favorite horror film of all time like brian i discover new things about it constantly i just think everything is on point like the performances the production design barker's camera work and also this movie is just so fucking queer. Like we we barely scratched the surface of all of the different interpretations and queer readings you can have of this movie. But like, obviously, Cenobites, super queer. Frank, queer. Julia, uh, I mean, unorthodox. Kirsty's dabbling with it, man. I just think there's so much to discuss and appreciate about this movie and the fact that it's Clyde Barker and the fact that it's his debut feature film. I think it's just one of the most important horror films and i'm so happy i got to talk about it and uh, we didn't really talk about just the structure of it as a film in general but i do think this one was paced expertly even when it has that transition between julia and kirsty like it could feel like the film has to restart oh we're introducing this character and giving her more to do it doesn't feel that way it just feels seamless yeah yeah well okay before we announce what we're covering next week, uh, Brian, first, thank you for coming on. And second, let everyone know where they can find you on social media. Of course, uh, you can get me on Twitter at Evil Taylor Hicks. Pretty much 
that's about it for me when it comes to social media. That's more than enough. Um, so yeah, in terms of uh, my work, like you said earlier, you can find me. Uh, uh, I've got uh, a monthly interview column called Let's Scare Brian to Death Through Daily Dead. Both of you have done installments of that, which mm-hmm. were both lovely. So, you know, folks, if you haven't seen that, go check them out. And uh, yeah, I've got a couple of recurring columns in Roomwork Magazine. Uh, you can uh, see... What do I do? Shadowland, where it just kind of takes the historical origins from certain movies uh, and uh, dives into those a little bit. And I also do a short horror review roundup called Shortcuts, which is a lot of fun because I really like being able to showcase short horror, which, Joe, I know that's also well, actually for both of you. That's a uh, mm-hmm. a sweet spot for you, too. Mm. So, yeah, check that out. Well, if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at HorrorQueers. Shoot us an email at HorrorQueers at gmail.com. Find us on Letterboxd to keep track of all the films we've covered. Go to our YouTube channel to check out our interviews with various horror filmmakers, as well as our monthly hangouts where we talk about hot-button issues with some of our journalistic peers. And if you want to chat with other listeners, please join our Facebook Horror Queers group. But if you also want to show us some love, you can uh, go to a rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. We do love Apple Podcasts and Spotify reviews. But on the flip side, if you want even more content, support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. This month, we've got episodes on our favorite horror movie sequences in non-horror movies, the social media slasher movie Sissy, the horror prequel double feature you didn't know you needed with Orphan First Kill and Ty West Pearl, and an audio commentary on Wishmaster, just in time for its 25th anniversary. Uh, talk about be careful what you wish for. <laughs> I saw that for the first time last year, and I shockingly enjoyed it quite a bit. Yeah, I can. Practical effects. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Joe, mm-hmm. oh, what we're talking? What, what are we talking about next week? Ah, <laughs> uh, well, speaking of remakes and also films that get better each time you watch them, Trace, it is finally time to tackle the Suspiria remake from 2018. Oh boy, um, I have only seen this movie once, and it was my first viewing. Well, obviously my first viewing. I'm sorry, <laughs> I have only seen this movie once. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I've seen it a couple of times, and every single time I'm like, yep, once you figure out the pacing and you know where it's going to go, oh boy, does this baby play well. I'm really excited because it is a film where I was like, I, I was okay with it on a first watch, but yeah, um, I, it's been more where I've always been like, oh, I need to see it again to like watch it on its own terms, like knowing what it is. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's like three hours long, so. It is, yeah. <laughs> But uh, until next week, everyone, we can cross out once and for all until we get to that sequel, Mm. Hellraiser. Indeed. And cross out horror queers. (laughs) 